aren't you, kid? I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. On Raglan Road Of an autumn day I saw her first and knew That her dark hair would weave a snare That I might one day rule I saw the danger and I passed Along the enchanted way And I said, let grief be a fallen leaf at the dawning of the day. On Grafton Street in November, we tripped lightly along. Of a deep ravine where can be seen The worth of passion's pledge The queen of hearts still making tart And I'm not making hay Oh, I loved too much and by such, by such is happiness thrown away. What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 496, podcast for hardcore cinephiles who protect everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're going to be doing a giant comprehensive look at the last few decades of Irish cinema and this genuine like film renaissance that's been taking place. And we're going to talk about the conditions that created that, but also just some of the remarkable movies that have been created since basically like the late 80s. But with me for this conversation, we got Robert O'Mara. He's a filmmaker operating out of Dublin. He's a facilitator at the Dublin Filmmakers Collective and a director, producer, writer with Four Courts Films. And I just have to say, Robert, you sent the best pitch I've ever received in 496 episodes of the podcast. You sent me this huge DM about your idea for the episode and all the films you want to discuss. So I'm really excited for today, but welcome to Wrong Real. No, it's great to be here. I have to say I'm a long-time listener and uh, really looking forward to getting dug into some of this uh, material that we have here, you know? And this is basically virgin territory for the podcast. I mean, we've mentioned a few things in passing, like Excalibur, which obviously was was shot in, in Ireland, and shows like Game of Thrones, which I know has shot a lot of footage in Ireland. But we really have neglected Irish cinema, and there's so many just amazing filmmakers that have come out of the country, or filmmakers who have chosen to migrate there and live there and work there. I know uh, Daniel Day-Lewis basically lives there now, even though he, 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 he wasn't born there. Yeah, he's an honorary Irishman, you know. There's quite a few of them who have become honorary Irishmen, like John Borman and, and uh, who, who else? Um, 
quite a few uh, filmmakers as well as uh, actors that, that have lived here, you know, and, and we just assume they're Irish now, you know. Well, I was lucky enough to visit your country back in March of 2008. I was in business school and part of a global uh, uh, immersion elective. We traveled to Ireland and the Netherlands to visit with certain companies and write papers and blah, blah, blah. But it was right on the tail end of what they were describing as the Celtic tiger. And so for when I was in business school, they're basically <laughs> describing how like in the late 80s, the Economist had a cover that said the poorest country in Europe and it had this, you know, somebody begging on the cover. And then they were basically talking about what led to this economic, I guess, I mean, resurrection over the 20 years leading up to the Celtic Tiger. So it was a really exciting time to visit the country at that time. But also we went out and listened to music and drank a lot of beer and yeah, had, had a fine time. And sadly, I was only in Dublin for a couple of days, but you know, I visited the, the Guinness Brewery and all, all the usual tourist traps. And yeah, we, we, we had a fine time. Yeah, I actually missed the Celtic Tiger. I left I left Ireland in 94, just as it was kind of getting getting going. And I didn't return till about 2008, 2009, you know, so I'm, I missed the whole boom. I came back for the bust. But, uh... <laughs> well, well, the whole world was going through a bust at that yeah. time. Well, let's yeah. start first with you. Who are you? What are, what are you working on these days? Just talk a little bit about your career, and then we can start easing into this giant topic of Irish cinema. Yeah, so, I mean, I came back from um, London. I spent nearly 10 years in London and um, a little bit of time in France. Prior to that, I was in the States for about six years. But I came back to Dublin, and there was no work. It was the bust, and uh, I was signing on to unemployment benefit, and they they, made, they forced me to do a course, which was um, creative digital media, and uh, one of the modules was filmmaking, and uh, I just fell in love straight away because I mean it was something that I always wanted to do, but there was no outlet for me when I was um, when I was leaving school. Like there was no film schools, there was no uh, kind of film industry as such. And, uh, you know, if you ask your, your career guidance, if he asked you what your career guidance teacher, what you wanted to be, if you said filmmaker, he'd say, don't be a fucking idiot. You know, <laughs> they, 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 you were expected to, to do an apprenticeship, which is what I did. I, I done an apprenticeship as an electrician and then I moved to the States. But when I came back here, um, I, done this course it was a year long and uh, i just fell in love and i i suddenly realized i could make films because all the technology had changed that you had you could edit on your computer and all that stuff so um and when i finished that i would come out of the i, I used to run a venue in, in london so i i knew loads of uh, bands so i was making music videos and i made a load of music videos but what i really wanted to do was make films narrative films but i didn't know any actors and i didn't know any crew so um, I started this group, Dublin Filmmakers Collective, uh, and straight away, like the first meeting, there was like 30 people there, and um, we just started doing 24-hour, 48-hour, 72-hour film challenges, and uh, basically it was, it was the best thing that ever happened. And now those really. challenges where you basically have a, a set time limit to start, shoot, edit, and deliver the film? Yeah, yeah I mean, like the, 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 the most... Usually it was like a 72-hour challenge, so you, you, you meet on a Thursday, and they have... You usually give them something like a prop, a line of dialogue, and maybe a character, and then they um, they all go write a story, shoot for the, the the Friday, Saturday, and then edit and we'd screen it on a Sunday, you know? Yeah, I did and, one of those uh, in LA one time with AFI where they gave us a topic and they turned us loose, but I think we only had 24 hours for the for all in. And obviously, people lower their expectations. They're not expecting, you know, a, a giant, like, you know, David Lean film to, to emerge from the process. Yeah. But they are fun to say, what can we crank out when we've got a, a ticking clock scenario? 
Yeah, we started to expand. We started with the 24-hour format, but then we wanted to give them at least a day or two to write the short screenplay. You know, that it really upped the quality of the films. Um, and then we even started doing then one-month film challenges, which they have like a week to write, two weeks to shoot, and a week to do post. And they're nice, really well, well, nice little films, maybe 10, 15 minutes long, you know. So the quality really upped from there. And over the over like the four or five years now we've done like getting close to 200 shorts and um, we started doing them um, pilots we, we made a pilot for a tv series that we were trying to sell and then we uh, i produced a film a feature film kind of similar to paris jetem or new york i love you so we could give as many directors and writers in the group uh, a chance to be involved and, and is uh, that the uh, one night in dublin film one night in dublin yeah so um you know, it was, it was a zero budget film. Like with each director, there was twelve directors that ended up with. There was fifteen, but we ended up with twelve films. Uh, each director was in charge of funding their own segment, and some people funded it more than others. Um, so the, the the quality varied, but um, we, we we didn't find a distributor. But eventually, I managed to get it picked up by um, uh, In Flight Dublin, which is the a, a, a company that provides uh, films to airlines so so last last year for the month of august and september it, it was a f- special feature on all Aer Lingus flights long-haul flights around the world you know so that was it was something you know hell yeah um, yeah so but but in the meantime since then um i'm i'm now i decided to go back to college and i'm doing a master's in screenwriting Interesting. So that, that start, yeah, started in October. So um, with that, we have to do like basically we have to have three drafts of a screenplay and a TV series Bible and first episode. So that that's what I'm. Any particular Irish writers that you're taking inspiration from when it comes to screenwriting? Because obviously, I know when it comes to theater, you have a fine tradition tradition of Irish theater and poetry. Said, but what about Irish screenwriters? Y- yeah, screenwriters. I mean. I suppose the writers that we know here that I'm familiar with would, would, would be Jim Sheridan, you know, and, and, and Neil Jordan, because they're the guys that I kind of grew up watching films and, um, and, and also like worldwide influences, really. But I mean, in particular, the screenplay I'm working on, it's, um, it's a Second World War story. And it, it's something because I grew up in the, the 70s where the, 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 the British were still fighting the Second World War. So they, every other film was a was a World War II film or TV series was a World War II series. But there was never an Irish connection, you know. So um, and, I, and I found this really unique story, true story about these two guys who uh, they happened to be in the British Army. Uh, and they joined naively, thinking there was not going to be a war just after the Chamberlain uh, thing and um, the peace in our time thing. But then they were quickly stationed to um, the Channel Islands, and then World War Two broke out. And these two were two young chancers, Irish guys, and they they went out in the piss one night, and uh, they got into a lot of trouble, smashed up the town, attacked the policemen, were thrown into jail. And the police or the the, the army wanted nothing to do with them. The Germans invaded France, and the, the the British army abandoned these two guys. So when the Germans arrived in the Islands, they took them to, to POW camp and then they recruited them to become spies. Whoa. And uh, yeah, so these guys were like recruited to come to be parachuted back into the, to Ireland, but then so much stuff went on. Eventually, th- that whole um, operation was cancelled and they were given a choice to either go back into the POW camp system, which meant they're probably going to be killed, or joined the SS. So they signed up for the SS and um, they were recruited out of SS school into the uh, Otto Scorzani commandos, uh, the guy who rescued Mussolini. And uh, these guys were in the thick of it right through to the Battle of Berlin, you know, and it's an unknown story. I'd never heard about it, but I came across it. So I'm kind of doing a fictionalized version of this, you know. Fascinating. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so, so I'm kind of I don't know where the inspiration comes from in terms of writing writers or anything like that, but that's that, that's the uh, for me it's just a fascinating kind of Irish connection to uh, the war, you know. Well, in your initial pitch, I love how you described Irish film culture, but how Irish film culture in general punches above their weight class. I think a lot of people aren't really aware of the fact that Ireland is a relatively small country. I guess if, I mean, population is what, four or five million or so if you include... Four million. I mean, if you yeah, if you include the north of Ireland, um, it's around five million, you know? So yeah, I mean, like in America, we have about 40 million people who claim either partial or full Irish ancestry. So, like, I mean, I live in yeah. New York. You throw a rock, you're going to find an Irish bar. I mean, the Irish yeah, culture I, I, is alive and well in this town, and people are fiercely – and obviously in Boston, they're fiercely proud as well. But there's a strong – but people, they've been here for three, four, five generations. Oh, I'm Irish. Like, no, you're not. Like, you're a New Yorker. <laughs> but yeah. they're so proud of their Irish well, we heritage said it for and years, Irish culture. Like our biggest export is our people, you know, yeah. and that, that, that's it. There's, there are more Irish living abroad than here, you know. Yeah, the Irish diaspora is, a, I guess, how I've heard it described. But for a country as, as small, I mean, it's about a, the entire country, about half the size of New York, it's astonishing how many cultural exports emerge from Ireland, from from plays to pop stars to films to TV shows? I mean, it really is just culturally an incredibly fertile, rich environment from which all these stories and all this art tends to emerge on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, especially like with with the indie arts, with with writers uh, first and foremost. You know, James Joyce, obviously, but Kavanaugh and poets and um, guys like Brendan Behan. You know, the, uh, and then music is another big export that we bring around. You know, and um, I suppose a lot of time it was brought by the emigrants, but um, also just even up until the, you know, the, especially with the eighties, with the like guys like U two, Concrete America, and stuff like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, with the arts, we've always had. We, we're just an artistic people we like to sing we like to tell stories and that kind of thing and uh, a, a part of that what we're going to talk about is, is the fact that our minister for culture back in uh, the beginning of the 90s was an artist himself this guy michael d higgins and he, he was a poet a writer and an artist and uh, he really took an interest in the film business and he, he it was important it was important for him to um to to keep it going and to, to make to generate more more interest in it and stuff. So, how say. would you describe the Irish film industry from like, you know, the time of John Ford shooting The Quiet Man through like John Borman shooting Excalibur? Because it seems like from the late eighties onward, it seems like there's a, a really concerted effort to build a countrywide industry devoted to film. But how would you would you characterize it as like almost like an accidental and haphazard prior to that or Obviously, just from looking at the list that you sent me of all the films that were shot in Ireland, whether it's Dementia 13 or Bo Moby Dick or whatever the case might be. Yeah. But just give me some of your impressions about films like, you know, Zardoz and Ryan's Daughter and Duck You Sucker, etc. Yeah, I mean, like for some reason, like, um, filmmakers wanted to come here. I mean, you, you would think, okay, you can accept guys like John Ford, who's kind of Irish heritage, that he wanted to come here and make a film. But then it's it's some of the other filmmakers that, that came here. Even John Huston, you know, I don't know how how Irish he was, but well, he but, lived but, uh, in Ireland for years as like Master of the Hounds. But he definitely was vintage Americana. Where he's a, a, a true kind of Americanized a lot of. But he fell in love with Irish culture and fell in he, love with fox hunting, and he yeah. just, he adored Irish culture. So I think he had a home there for many years, and then he fell in some financial trouble and fell into financial trouble and had to sell it. Yeah, what I what I didn't realize about John Huston because I, I knew all about that that he was master of the hunt and he was living here. So he came here for um he came here from Moby Dick basically in in the fifties fifty six or so and and then he moved here a few years later. But he quickly got in with um the the, the scene and he he took a big interest in the Irish film scene 
And uh, so what I what I found out was that John Euston he, he met with our Taoiseach, which is the Irish for Prime Minister, a, a guy called Jack Lynch, and, and he he talked to him about developing an, a homegrown film industry. And of course, yeah, Jack Lynch was delighted. He said, "Yeah, okay." So he he put. Um, he put John Euston in touch with the Minister for Industry and they, they set up a panel with John Euston as the, as the chairman. And they spent a few years putting together a, a charter, basically. And I came across this charter and, it, and it's really enlightening stuff, you know. Um, it's basically, it, this, was, this was in the 50s and the 60s and it, it's basically the charter of our present day film board or Screen Ireland. I mean, it's, it's like um, the, the board should engage in the following activities, distribution agreements to advise or assist on producers in the making of, of agreements for the marketing of films, co-production agreements to assist in negotiating arrangements between Irish filmmakers and, and those of other countries with a view to sharing the resources and facilities, uh, training facilities to provide the opportunity and financial assistance to writers, musicians, directors, artists, designers, craftsmen and technicians to be trained in filmmaking either at home or abroad and to vision of other facilities necessary for film production and uh, finally to create a national film archive you know it's it's, it's amazing stuff like and this this was like you know decades and decades before we actually got a film board so um so it was guys like who from outside who really helped develop our film industry because at, at the time it really was just um filmmakers coming here to shoot a film on location and then take it away and they weren't always necessarily set here they weren't always like like the quiet man they weren't necessarily set in ireland um with irish actors and an american cast or whatever but they were just coming here to use the the background and yeah i mean zardoz who the hell knows where zardoz is set <laughs> yeah exactly now is there any um, pushback uh, by irish um i guess literary buffs against john houston doing the dead because obviously james joyce he's i mean he's such a I mean, I was an English major in college, and we, we studied quite a bit of uh, James Joyce. But obviously, The Dead was John Houston's last movie, and I know he just he put, he put literally everything he had in it. But he was like he was in a wheelchair with on an oxygen yeah. tank. And I know for a lot of Americans, they really loved The Dead and how he went out on a high note. But I perhaps people, no, I, I, I don't know if there's any pushback. You see, because John 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 uh, Houston, he really ingratiated himself to the Irish people, and they really took. Took took him to their to themselves into their hearts, and they, they loved John Huston, you know. So they were more than happy for him to to make the dead. You know, he, he used a lot of our great actors in, in the dead as well. And uh, no, it's a cherished film. I mean, because nobody else had really attempted it, you know. So no, I don't think you were precious about it. Um, it's it's you know at the, at the moment even there's like a a bit of a campaign going on because the house where they filmed, which was originally the the, the Joyce house has been bought by developers who want to turn it into a youth hostel, you know? And there's a, there's a bit of an uproar about that. You know, he used, I think, the, fa the facade and stuff for it. Gotcha. But, but um, no, it's um, it, it's a very treasured film here, and uh, him him and his films are really, uh, you know, held in high regard here. Yeah, I, I adore John Huston from the earliest days of Maltese Falcon up to the bitter end. I mean, films like uh, Preetzee's Honor and, yeah. you know, uh, Under the Volcano, or like, I mean, like in the 70s doing things like The Man Who Would Be King. But Man King, yeah, yeah, he's just such, for me, one of the great adventurer, larger than life personalities from his hunting to his womanizing to his drinking. I mean, he just, and just through this remarkable filmography that over the course of four and a half decades, I, I've got nothing but positive things to say about John Huston. For he's a genuine yeah. legend. 
Yeah, absolutely. But but he was like not the only one. Like so, around the time that he drew up this charter, you know, the, we had change of government, so it kind of got shelved and back. But in that time, um, John Borman arrived. I mean, just by chance, he couldn't find any facilities to do his post production work in in London. So he heard there was some space. I think he was working on. Um, I think. Uh, what was the film? It was uh, for Leo the Last. He wanted to do the post production on Leo the Last, so he he came over here to work in Ardmore. It was like 1969, and he was just happened to be walking around the city one day. There was an auction on. He saw this property really cheap, an old rectory for sale. So he went in and bid on it, and that was him. He's been living here ever since, you know. And once he moved here, he took an active interest in developing a homegrown uh, film industry, you know. He, and he kind of more or less took the torch from Houston and uh, started working on it too. He, he, and he became um, head of Ardmore Studios, which is um, our own, at the time was our only film studio. And uh, he, he was there trying to develop films, get, get them the, the film board up and running. And he was involved with them, um, you know, trying to get uh, young Irish people working in, in the industry because the, it was a very much a closed shop. The um, Ardmore Studio, the only places where you could work in television or film, Ardmore Studios. If, you, if your grandfather or your, your auntie or uncle wasn't were already working there, chances are you wouldn't get a job gotcha. there either. Well, I mean, you look at me like Excalibur, there's so many marvelous Irish actors in there. And I mean, that's just a who's who of like the next 30 years of kick-ass talent coming out of that country. Yeah, but, I mean, you think about everybody he hired there. I mean, from, from Patrick Stewart and Helen Mirren on the British side to Gabriel Byrne, Liam yeah, Neeson. Liam Neeson you know? and so, I mean, there's so many people. You're like, oh my God, yeah. oh my God. Like, it's just, it's, it, 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 everywhere you just have so many remarkable actors and I, I've been watching that movie on a loop basically my entire life <laughs> yeah. I really love that well, film but if you look at the credits of that there's a small strange title in one of the credits ex- ex- executive assistant and that was Neil Jordan wow so Neil Jordan he took Neil Jordan on as a young uh, kind of assistant he was helping them rewrite stuff. He was filming a documentary at the same time. Plus, he was just basically being a general dog's body. But he was basically at Borman's shoulder learning. And then when, when Excalibur fi- finished, uh, Borman then encouraged uh, encouraged uh, Neil Jordan to make a film. So Neil Jordan wrote a script um, for a film called Angel and Borman produced it, you know, in 1981. So he was the start of this section of, of that too. You know, that, that was his deal. I think he was very much a uh, a guy, Borman, of like the, the Tony Curtis school. I, I've never seen an interview with Tony Curtis saying it's your duty as a, if, when you make it to kind of reach back down the ladder and give the next, the next people coming a helping hand up. You know, I think Borman was one of those guys, I think because he'd experienced the same thing with uh, Lee Marvin basically uh, kind of protecting him when he went to America and yeah, helping him. Blank, yeah. Uh, yeah, and sheltering him from all the, the, the crap that was going on around him. So he, I think he wanted to kind of extend the same thing, not just to actors, but to Neil Jordan, basically, you know. Yeah, John so, Boardman, I think too many people sleep on his career, but from point blank through the general, for me, it's like 30 years of greatness and so many amazing movies in there. I, I, I never yeah. get tired of watching his films. Yeah, I mean, he, he obviously he made a few bogeys, but I mean, most of the, I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan, and I have been since I seen Point Blank. You know, obviously Deliverance, everyone loves that film, and Hell <laughs> uh, the Pacific. You know, um, it's just well, he's just got a great output, and then he's got some. I mean, I really loved when, when I was a, a coming of age and when I was a young teenager. There was this um, hope and glory in the eighties, mm-hmm. you know. 
and it was just a great uh, again second world war his his life basically um and i really connected with that and then he done a sequel then like what almost 30 years later uh, queen and country or king and country yeah, I, never I, saw, I never saw the sequel but i've seen i, I guess I think The General is actually the last John Borman film that I saw. Oh, actually, no, Taylor of Panama was the last one that I saw. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Well, no, I, I really enjoy, I really enjoyed uh, Queen and Country, which was the second part of his life, and he used most of the same actors that he'd used 30 years before, you gotcha. know. Gotcha. I'm really hoping he just manages to do it the, the third one, which would be about how he became a filmmaker. Is know? he in his, like, mid-80s now? He's in his 80s, yeah, you know, but he's, he, he's last year... He Ken opened, Loach is that old as well, and Ken Loach is still working. Yeah, I mean, last year, um, along with Roger Corman, uh, John Borman and Roger Corman opened up the Irish Film School, where they do it's 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 kind of an exclusive. You, you pay for like you pay the books, and you, it's it's like a week long uh, master class courses where with, with either John John Borman or Roger Corman. But he's still doing that and um, executive producing and stuff. So whether or not he'll do another film. It remains to be seen, you know. Well, since so you mentioned Roger Corman, let's dive into that a bit because obviously in America, everybody loves John, Roger Corman because in the late 60s, early 70s, he was giving filmmakers like Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese and Joe Dante and Francis Ford Coppola. He really helped groom, or in Joel Schumacher, he groomed like a, a new generation of luminaries within the American film industry. But obviously he has chapters where he was making movies over in the Philippines. I mean, he's made movies all over the world or pictures, as he calls it. I always find uh, for me, I, I can't say pictures. That makes me sound too pretentious, but he's old enough where he can say pictures. But I yeah. think a big chapter of his career that a lot of people are totally unaware of is that in the early nineties, he's cranked out. I mean, he was like the most active film producer in Ireland with his Ireland, studio. Yeah. I mean, this is something that escaped me, you know, I was living in New York at the time, and I, and I missed this, and I, I, it it really eats me up that I wasn't here and aware of that because I would have been down there straight away, you know. But he, he came over here in '63. Well, he sent he, he sent Francis Ford Coppola over here in '63 to do Dementia 13. You know, he gave him like twenty twenty thousand uh, dollars to go shoot this thing, and then he kind of came over, and that was his first kind of introduction to Ireland, and he really liked it because there wasn't it was low wages and the the unions weren't so strict and stuff like that. So he he came. Back here again in 1970, um, he was he was doing the Red Baron basically, and he was given full access to the Irish Army, and the, the, they had these planes left over from uh, the Blue Max that was shot here with George Papard. So he had he really enjoyed his time here. And while he was here, he ran into this guy in 1970. He would have run into this this guy Michael D Higgins. And Michael D. Higgins remembered him. So I don't think Michael D. Higgins was aware who Roger Corman was. He knew he's a film producer. So back in the, in the early 90s, after the uh, success of uh, My Left Foot, which came home with uh, Best Actor Awards uh, for, and Best Supporting Actress Awards for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Brenda Fricker, and then um, Neil Jordan won uh, for Best uh, Screenplay for The Crying Game. And so he was like, well, we've got to do something like this. He was Minister for Arts and Culture at the time. And so he, re he restarted the film board, which had been shut down by a previous government. And But he didn't trust the film board and he didn't trust Ardmore enough that to just leave them at it and that they would sort out the film business. So he wanted to bring someone who he thought like could have a lot more experience in. So he looked around, he was thinking, oh, who was that film producer that I met? And he's like, Roger Corman. So he, he contacted Roger Corman and uh, he invited him over and he, and he said, look, we'll give you this amount of money for uh, for you to set up a studio here in, uh, in Dublin. And then he said, but if you wanted to set your studio up over in the west of Ireland, we'll give you even more money. And 
if you want to set your film studio over in the west of Ireland in the, the Gwail talked area, which is the Irish speaking area, we'll give you even more money, you know? So Roger Gorman was like, hey, why not, you know? Now, so when you was, go to that western part with the Irish speaking area, is it like that scene in The Guard where people quite literally don't speak English? Like, all right, if you want to speak English, go back to England. Or is, it, or is that are, a little overstated? Yeah, that's, there are parts. There are small parts where it's like that. But on the whole, no. I mean, um, and it's certainly not like uh, in my whole life in Dublin, I, ne- I only one time I heard two people speaking Irish gotcha. in Dublin. You know, I, I, one time I was a mother and a daughter on a bus. But other than that, and, and when you go out to the West, no, you just hear English unless you go to the very some very small communities where you will find Irish still spoken, you know. Okay. Because in the, that documentary the, you sent me, half the crew members are speaking Irish. That, and then yeah, I was I like, was, whoa. <laughs> so I, I, I just, I, it never even occurred to me that in Ireland you have like pockets where people don't communicate with English. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, they, 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 they do. I mean, so out in the West, a lot of people are bilingual. They do speak. Whereas a lot of people in Dublin, in the city, they they, they tend to forget Irish after they leave school. You okay. know, you're taught, you're taught in school. But when you come out, you don't use it, you know. But in the West of Ireland, people do tend to retain it, you know. Um, so yes, in that documentary, as you've seen, so um, Roger Corman was, he was given, it wasn't a whole lot, but it, it amounted to about a million uh, pounds, uh, a million punts, Irish punts, which was about, uh, I suppose, $1.2 million at the time. Substantial amount. They gave him a plot of land and he built this, we call it a studio. It was pretty much like a, you know, a cinder block building um, with very, very limited facilities. But, um, you know, he started off with about um, 40 people um, employed. He sent over um, his his kind of wing woman to, to kind of get everything get everything going. And, um, I mean, they were pretty much up and running within within a few weeks um, and starting to shoot their first film. Um, and, it, it, you know, um, I suppose... Like that, I was saying to you about the Dublin community, they they were very opposed to this, um, the, the, because they were all unionized and they didn't like um, the idea of these guys over there doing stuff without having to consult them or whatever. But um, Corman, you know, over the over the period, I mean, it's from about 1993 to um, the end of the 90s, basically, they shot like 20 films, I think, and um, and most of it was like, or all of it was pretty much straight to video, um, B movie stuff. I mean, I haven't seen any of them. Yeah, I was it's all look, spy movies and sci-fi movies and monster movies, all the things that he likes to do and that he's been yeah. doing since the 50s. You know, tons of nudity, tons of violence. But for people who like low budget schlock, Roger Corman is the heavyweight champion for. for all time yeah I, I mean and he was getting over people who had just kind of moved from the kind of a-list territory into the b-list territory people like um alexandra paul who'd been big in baywatch but even like um james brolin who like when i was growing up in the 70s he was pretty big you know and uh, well josh so brolin james- thanos himself is in a james brolin movie shot in ireland doing an irish accent i was like all right. and he does, yes, and he does a fairly good Northern Ireland accent, Josh Brolin. He's very young, but he does a passable Northern Ireland accent, which I was surprised, you know. But um, but yeah, so it, it was it was it was a really interesting thing, and they were just basically let go or let at it basically, and um, they they hired all these inexperienced people and just kind of turned them loose. Um, you could be working as a camera assistant one day, first AD the next in the makeup department. You could be doing sound or, or grip or whatever. And then you could end up finding yourself directing, you know? Um, yeah, and that's how yeah. people like Joe Dante became filmmakers. Like you would be cutting trailers and suddenly they'd find themselves getting these opportunities. And whereas in Hollywood, sometimes people are a little bit 
and it's not necessarily like a top-down thing. Sometimes people are very rigid, like, oh, I'm a set decorator and I'm nothing else. You can't ask me to do anything unless it's my set decorator responsibilities. But on a low-budget movie, everybody's got to wear a lot of hats. But if, like John Carpenter, when he went to film school, he was taught to do every single role on the film, which I feel like is a huge advantage for people as a filmmaker. So I feel like there's no better training ground, like forget film school, go work on a yeah. low budget movie where you're going to have to juggle a lot of different responsibilities. But I love the anecdote by Don, the dragon Wilson, where he says, well, basically we'd shot this movie in America and we just took the exact same script and shot it all over again. But shot it in <laughs> Ireland. Yeah. I just called it whatever part eight or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, he seemed to really enjoy it. A lot of the guys who were interviewed in that documentary seemed to enjoy the fact that it wasn't this constrained, unionized set where you had to stand around for two hours while someone figured out who's, who's going to move this cable or whatever, that people just got on and did it, you know. And, um, and they did. I mean, and these guys, you know, naive and young as they were, they, they, they learned pretty quickly and they, they, they would shoot a film in two or three weeks uh, from start to finish and then straight on to the next one. And I mean, it started at around 40 people, but by, by the end, he, he had like close to 100 people employed. And during that time, literally hundreds of people, because you couldn't last long working in this system, you know, you, you might be in it for about a year or so, and then you just think, I've had enough, I'm going to go on and try and but get a But then the beautiful job. thing is, any show or movie can come to Ireland and there's a, there's a, a base of crew to be drawn upon. Yeah. So suddenly you have this available workforce, which makes it all the more attractive for a production to come to Ireland and uh, shoot their film there. Yeah, I mean, this was a thing because like it, it all came to a sad end, basically, because part of the deal about this, they were like, what are these guys doing here? You know, so they, they, they forced them to, to enter a film into the uh, the Galway Film Flag, which is one of our prestige film festivals here. And um, the film they entered, you know, was like... Um, proper violent, uh, full of sex, and uh, there was a bit of an uproar about it, and the, the press came down on them and with a big story, like Irish government funds porn movies in the west of Ireland, you know, and uh, there was an outcry, basically, and I think it was probably kind of amplified by the, the uptight unionite people up here in Dublin who didn't like these guys, so it kind of ended in, it ended in a kind of a damp squib, and it just kind of petered out, but at, when it petered out, there was like literally hundreds of crew around trained up crew not necessarily directors there was a few people directors but loads loads of sound ops and dops and, and uh, gaffers and you know uh, all kinds of people just looking to work and um up until that time you know if you wanted to make a film here in ireland you, you had to go through the, um, the the studio system which was one studio and you had to use their people and they were expensive but now you could like make a film and you could get it you could find a production designer or or, or a director of photography or whatever for willing to work for re relatively cheap and knowing how to make things cheap and you know like not not um you, you know like uh like painting a car one color on one side and painting it another color on the other side so you can have a driving yeah. back and forth in the shot and creating the illusion Absolutely. of more than one car <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you know this is the thing like you, you know that you learn you learn to like think on your feet and uh, to just uh, go with it and improvise and adapt and, and just uh, do whatever it takes to make a film and this way you could make films fast and quickly with little expense and this was this was at the start of the 90s towards the end of the 90s and uh, this is when our film um, independent film sector started to uh, put put out films you know because um, the, the kind of system had been broken and and was was to remain remain broken because um, we started getting more than one studio Ard, Ardmore's kind of 
gr- grasp on um, monopolizing the, the 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 film industry was gone, and um, because because a, a film show, the Tudors came to Ireland. You know, the Tudors, this big this big show, and um, they had all three of uh, Ardmore's uh, film stages, sound stages were booked up with sets built for years. So there was no other studio. So they had to build another studio, which they built in a place called Ashford, not far from Ardmore in Wicklow. And then Vikings, this show Vikings came there and then that was booked up. So they had to build another studio down in Limerick, you know. So we have three studios all of a sudden. And then up the north of Ireland, there's another studio built. And that and, and that's there you have um, Game of Thrones, you know. So it was like um, suddenly there was four film studios here and uh, lo- lots of talented crew people getting in and out, working on TV shows for a while, moving on and making films and um, the output just started growing. Um, There's probably at one point, I bet a greater percentage of people in Ireland working in the film industry than like comparatively to any other country in the world. Like if you're on a per capita basis, like what percentage of your country works in film and television? There's probably a good chance that Ireland might've had the highest percentage of any any country in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's quite, yes, absolutely. Well, I tell you, you know, like, so for, for about the last say eight years or so, um, if you wanted to make a film, you were hard pressed to find an actor that didn't have long hair and a beard because they were all either working on Vikings or Game of Thrones yep. or wanting to work on Vikings or Game of Thrones. And if you had a film, you just couldn't get them to shave. So any film that you made over that period more than likely had a long hair uh, and long bearded guy in it, you know. So that was the influence. I, I mean, and, and these, these, these productions were using not just actors, but huge amounts of extras, you know. They had like big, big major battle scenes. So they they were using hundreds and hundreds of extras at a time. So, so yeah, really, um, it's, it's, it's amazing. And then the, the, of course, from that, you have the kind of secondary employment coming through, like the, the guys feeding them and the, the delivering and building sets and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, the, the industry has just really grown and grown, you know? Well, let's start switching gears into some of these movies. Before we uh, started recording, you were nice enough to compose this giant list of Irish films and you've kind of got three different tiers. You've got like your essentials, your slightly less essential than ones you wanted to mention by name. And I've been doing my best to uh, rip through as many of these as humanly possible. And I think I saw like 12 or 13 films for the first time that I'd never been exposed to before. And we're just going to go through pretty much all these calling out a a lot of remarkable filmmakers. I sadly have not seen all the films on this list, but I've seen enough where I feel like I'll be able to, I'll be able to hang, I'll be able to keep up with you in the conversation to a degree, but it seems like starting with my left foot with Jim Sheridan, his, his feature film debut, that's really like, the true beginning of the modern era of Irish cinema becoming this giant a critical darling yeah. and awards contenders and festival darlings, etc. So what was it like uh, being in Ireland when suddenly my left foot exploded onto the scene, winning all these Academy Awards? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a big deal, you know, I mean, because just prior to that, you had Neil Jordan. But he was Neil Jordan was more or less like a British filmmaker, even though he was Irish. But he was making, you know, Mona Lisa, for instance, these really classic British gangster films and stuff. And so I wasn't even aware that Neil Jordan was Irish until later when he came out with The Crying Game. But My Left Foot came out and um, took these two Oscars, Daniel Day Lewis and uh, Brenda Fricker. And Brenda Fricker lives just down the road. She went to school with my mother, you know. So it was like, wow, this little L one basically from Dundrum who uh, suddenly w- was there accepting an Oscar. So it was a big deal. You know, and uh, like like a remarkable performance from Daniel Day Lewis because not only does he manage to master a Dublin accent, 
but he manages a Dublin accent in with somebody who has terrible palsy, you know, which, which but it comes through fantastically, you know. And, and he, um, I know he lived like basically in that character all day, every day and like broke several ribs from always lying over and being hunched up. I mean, he's yeah. of all the actors alive today. Obviously, he's not afraid to get invested in, in a role. Absolutely. And this, this was this was kind of his starter at that. You know, I think I read somewhere that he he, he saw this, he, the script was going around and he saw that the, the very opening scene of the screen of the, of the thing is uh, the guy puts on a record with his with his foot. You know, and he he just wanted to do it because he wanted to see if he could put the record on with his. Foot, Although you know? I hear that Jim Sheridan and Daniel Day Lewis had to cheat some of the shots with a mirror because Daniel Day Lewis could use his right foot much better than his left foot, so they'd shoot it with sure. the right foot, but they would reflect it and make it look like the left. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, no, I just gave it a watch today. I hadn't seen it in uh, probably thirty years. You know, but it's 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 it is remarkable, and not just him, but the the kid who plays the younger version also is fantastic. You know, but um, and yeah, this this. This Dublin, like a lot of these films that were made in the early 90s was this prior to this Celtic Tiger thing. So it, it kind of documented a, a, a Dublin that no longer exists. The urban know? decay, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's amazing. I also, like you mentioned the commitments there and, and I had um, I also rewatched the commitments and there's so much of what's there is just, is no more, you know, you, you just don't see those places anymore. Yeah, it's a time know? castle. I was rewatching commitments yesterday and it's funny how like, when I was a teenager, I was not into foreign films, art films, whatever, but the commitments, for whatever reason, it really popped in America as just a piece of mainstream entertainment. And as a teenager, I just watched it over and over and over, and I had a cassette in my car, and I listened to the soundtrack. But in particular, during the early scenes when they're auditioning people for the band, and you're just seeing dogs and kids running through all these back alleys between the houses, and it's like yeah. you really get a, a, a snapshot of North Dublin circa 1990, 1991, and it's just, yeah. it has a remarkable sense of just time and place. But yeah, The Commitments, I think, is one of the most entertaining movies of that decade and I get waves of goosebumps and chills up and down my arms every time I revisit that movie but the soft words they all spoke so gentle it makes it easier easier to bear yeah you won't regret it Girls, they never forget it. Love is their only happiness. But it is all so easy. All you gotta do. I mean, like, okay, my left foot came out in 1989 and then he followed that with the field. But for, for my generation, it was The Commitments, which was the first real Irish film, you know, like of our generation featuring real people, you know, like people, it could have been your mate in, in school or whatever, you know, that, um, I mean, when The Commitments came out, um, the cinema has done something they never did before. They stayed open 24 hours a day and just screened The Commitments on a loop. And people would go from the pub and spend the night in the cinema watching The Commitments and uh, soul music was everywhere. Everybody knew 
all the songs and stuff with them. Which is, yeah. it, it depicts Dublin as a city of music. When I was there, I mean, there's music everywhere, but I love how, like, the beginning, whether it's a wedding or kids in the streets or people selling cassettes on the train, but it's, I love yeah. how they basically establish that music imbues every single aspect of Dublin life, and it just hurls you into the deep end of the pool, and just watching, you know, Deco w- wasted at a wedding, singing and falling off the stage, but you're, just, you're thrown into so much music, and then, of course, then they, you shift into this love song to soul, which is obviously predominantly... American music in a, in, a lot, in a lot of ways, but I I know this might be blasphemy to say, but my favorite <laughs> version of "Try a Little Tenderness" is the version from this movie. Like, so, I, I think it yeah. defeats any other version when I when you because the band gets better and better and better and they keep getting more and more yeah. polished. But by the time you get to that moment, it's like the coolest fucking band of all time, and yeah. they just knock you on your ass. I, I mean, Alan Parker, he really looked out head there. I'm like the that, the guy who plays. Um, Jimmy, the guy who plays the uh, Jimmy Rabbit, he was supposed to be the singer, you know. He, he was the guy who was supposed to be the leader of the band, and then they were all set to go, and then suddenly somebody said, what about this guy? And it was Andrew Strong, you know. And then, he, he was like so the son he, of somebody who was already auditioning for another role, but he, he was like a teenager. Yeah. Like, Rob <laughs> Strong was a father. He was a, a kind of well-known blues blues musician here. But um, but yeah, so Robert Arkins, the, who was supposed to be the lead singer, he got kind of relegated to the main character, which I thought he was great in. You know, I oh, love this character. And and he was also, like, he sang some of the songs in the film. So the very first song, uh, as the credits come on, that's Robert Arkin singing. Um, but um, he was a musician. And when the film ended, he didn't want to be an actor. And he never acted again. He just be he just went, continued to make music, you know. Um, but um, but for me, I mean, the, 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 one who, the one who gets it, the, gets it all is uh, the father, you know. <laughs> he, he gets, who we know from he, Star he Trek gets, here in America. I mean, he's been I'm, in a million I'm, things, I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, he's um, he gets all the best lines. And this, this, char- this is the character that I grew up with. I mean, I went to a school, really working class school, and most of the, the guys in my class were rockabillies or teddy boys because their fathers were big Elvis fanatics, you know, with the big meat shop sideburns. And and so Colin Meany as, as the father, you know, he's just hilarious. Some of the lines, like when he's seeing the band being auditioned and he, your man comes, uh, jo- Joey the Lips arrives and he's, and he's like, uh, who was who was that? Oh, he said God sent him. Oh, the fucking Suzuki, <laughs> you know? Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. And he just or other lines like you two must be shitting themselves, you know, when <laughs> he's the band and stuff. But he was he was just great in that. Oh, when and, he's uh, floored by the story that Joey the Lips tells him about Elvis and he's like, Please forgive <laughs> my daddy. And Colin yeah. just he sits back and he's just so satisfied and so spellbound and he's just he's so invested. T- tell me tell me, Joey, tell me, Joey. <laughs> did you ever see Elvis was was he ever did you ever see Elvis using drugs? And he's like no, bro, no, brother, rabbit. And he turns to the son, and you, you malignant little bastard. He's like, <laughs> he's just, he's hilarious, you know. Yeah. He really is. And, and that, I wasn't sure if you were aware then that there was the two sequels or unofficial sequels. At which the time, were, I had no idea. Only as I started preparing for this episode, I realized that Roddy Dow had written this Barrytown trilogy, which is followed by yeah. the Snapper and the Van, which obviously brings yeah. Stephen Frears into the equation. Because I think there's a situation where like the rights to the commitments were sold one place, and then the rights to the other books were sold elsewhere. So they couldn't do it as a proper trilogy with the same actors. Yeah, but I had, had no idea. It was a giant side. I had to change the name of the character. So like, call 
Mini character. He was Mr. Rabbit in the first one, which was the real original name. But then they changed the last two to Curly, which was kind of confusing to some people. But it's the same character. So the, the second film was about the father and the daughter. And the third was about the father and his friends. But it's the same character. And Colomini kind of rocks it in all three. But yeah, the, the, the commitments really was, was the start. Because, I mean, for, for me growing up, you know, you couldn't really connect to Irish film. And even at the time, my left foot and, and the field, I wasn't really enamored of them as a, as a teenager, you know. Um, and the field I came to really love as I got older. But um, the commitments really was the start of it, you know. Tarantino I, I, loved it as well. After he saw it, he cast – how do you pronounce the actress's name? He plays Bernie. But oh, yeah, she- um, Brona Gallagher. Yeah, and she pops up in Pulp Fiction, but yeah, yeah this movie had a huge impact good. on him. Now, what do you think about the the, uh, the theory that the character played by Glenn Hansert, because at the end of this movie, he's back to panhandling, that it actually once is actually an unofficial sequel to the commitments showing him years well, later? Yeah. It's the spiritual sequel, you know. I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up if you didn't, if you didn't, you know. So yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of funny, and I think the director of once must have thought, okay, let's put him on Grafton because the same street is Grafton Street in Dublin, where all the buskers go. So the, the the more or less penultimate scene, you see him busking there on Grafton Street, and then I think could fourteen years later, and then once he's he's right there in the same spot on his own busking. Well, so what? yes, it's kind. Of, was such a big deal because it was such a cheap movie. But when I visited Dublin in 08, it was still on people's minds, even though it was a couple years old at that point. So every record shop, every store had these uh, these once advertisements. I was like, what is this movie once? So when I got back home, I rented it, ended up watching it over and over and over again just because the songs were so compelling. I, mean, I think The Commitments is the vastly superior movie, but once the songs are so remarkable yeah. that I ended up buying yeah. the soundtrack. But Commitments me for too. me is like just because it's part of my teenage years – the passion I feel for it can't even really be put into words. It's so funny, but also so savage. The shit talking that goes on between all the characters that continues to escalate as the movie progresses. It's just remarkable how savage the movie can be like early on they're on the train and they're singing together and it's so full of hope and everybody's got all these like great ideas for the future. And by the end, it's just so venomous. (laughs) Yeah. The vitriol between them is just there. It's it's just, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Like first of all, the drummer leaves because he's just going to kill the guy Deco. And and then the rest of them just start bitching. Joey lips sleep with all the the commitment debts. (laughs) So they're all hating each other. One can hardly blame them. The the girls in this movie are so beautiful. (laughs) And when they're singing in unison and moving in unison, it's just, it is as erotic as music gets. It's just, it's remarkable to watch. So, yeah, I, oh, of yeah. all the movies that we're going to talk about today, this and M. Bruges are the two yeah. that I could basically watch in, in perpetuity and never get tired of them at, remotely. Yeah, and Brona Gallagher and, um, oh, what's her name? Um, the, the dark-haired one. Um, Who's in a real band, I know. She was like a, a legit the, singer before. Well, they, Maria Doyle Kennedy. Yeah, they're, they're, them two have had really successful music careers since then, you know, and they're still making music, still making albums, and uh, they they make really cool music. Brona Gallagher makes kind of soul type uh, music, whereas um, Maria Doyle Kennedy is more kind of um, folky um, and poppy stuff. But they're they're really good, you know. Um, uh, Andrew Strong. I think he had a few albums afterwards, but he kind of faded into the dust, really, you know. Oh, but his voice. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's bone chilling the the power yeah. and the ferocity of that voice when he really like early on you see the first rehearsal of Mustang Sally 
and then you compare it to the end by the time they've really refined and honed Mustang Sally to perfection. It's just awe-inspiring how tight the band is by the end. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, he, he, Alan Parker, you know, he recruited musicians and he recruited I mean, musicians first and actors second. And that was the real big thing. He wanted it to have it. He wanted the band to be able to play. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody expected them to be able to play so well together, you know. And the, the soundtrack albums, I have both of them, you know, they're just remarkable. And they, they, they I mean, when I watched The Commitments the other day, it, it hasn't, I mean, the music is perfect still. It still sounds as, as pristine and as good as it did 30 years ago, you know. Yeah, it, it, it's a special movie. And, I really can't say enough th- positive things about it. I guess Alan Parker, was he really like the only Englishman working on this? Because obviously he made like The Wall and Birdie and Mississippi Burning, all of which have little yeah. like references scattered throughout the movie. But apparently he said this was the most enjoyable movie he ever made because he loves music. He loves working with young people. And so all, it was just it's a great collision of all of his uh, his all of his passions. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure some of his, uh, his crew were probably um, – his maybe production designer and stuff might have been uh, English or c- come with him from his previous. I mean, who knows? Because I mean, he was getting he, he'd been making films. I mean, s- since um, the seventies, you know. Um, yeah, Midnight Express, we, we did, and I love well, Angel Heart. Yeah, like Angel Heart, uh, Bugsy Malone. When we were kids, Bugsy Malone was a big deal, and and, and then. Uh, uh, Mississippi burning what whatnot you know but everybody in America talks about Angela's ashes and I, I saw Angela's ashes in the theaters when it came out but I I was kind of one and done with Angela's ashes but yeah. uh commitments I've seen a million times like if I, yeah. if I want the true Alan Parker Irish experience I'm gonna watch the commitments yeah it's, it, it's funny um no absolutely I mean I, I Angela's ashes I, I kind of I think I watched it once and kind of got bored and switched it off it wasn't my thing you know um i, I have enough depression in my life without having to go there you know Absolutely. but no I, I don't um alan, alan parker like for us as well it was a big deal because this was the guy who'd done fame and all these other films and here he was making the commitments this irish story and uh, i mean for me it's funny um i my dvd copy of uh, the commitments it has this sticker on it has this sticker on it which yeah. says uh yeah i see yeah yeah, yeah. The, Best of British, you know, celebrations of British film, and people would fight about that over in this country. Commitments is an Irish film, true and true. You well, know? most I mean, I, I, in the outside world, most <laughs> Americans are such dumbasses to think that Ireland's part of the UK. I'm like, no, Ireland's a sovereign yeah. nation. It's been a sovereign nation for quite some time, and a lot of blood was spilt, both internally yeah, and externally, yeah. to to make that a reality. But yeah, never underestimate Americans' complete and total lack of understanding of uh, of other countries. And but obviously, some of the films. We'll, we'll be discussing today tackle the war, uh, war of Irish independence and obviously the Irish Civil War yeah. and the Troubles and all these topics come up again and again but most Americans are pl- pretty blissfully unaware that Ireland is a sovereign nation yeah I mean in, in Ireland we, we always have this kind of issue with the with the British people claiming our actors, but we claim the British actors just as much, you know. Um, and if like if the British might claim that film, and they might claim Saoirse Ronan as a British actress when she's nominated for an, an Oscar, and uh, when she when she doesn't get it, she was Irish actress and stuff like that. But we do the same, you know. As I said, um, Daniel Day Lewis is Irish. If you ask anybody over here, so um, it's it's a kind of ongoing thing. But yeah, you know. It's very hard not to have dealt with the troubles in the in the movies, you know. Um, they've they've kind of had, been a shadow, the the war of independence, but also the 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 non-war, which we call the troubles, which which lasted from like nineteen sixty nine through till nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety nine, or nineteen ninety nine. Um, it, it kind of overshadowed our films and and a lot of the films that were made during that time 
did have that as a background. Um, well, maybe that's a perfect segue into The Crying Game, which is one of the big films on your list, because The Crying Game was quite notorious when it came out in America because of the, uh, the transgender relationship of the film, which in 1992 was brand new for a lot. Now it's like, you know, you throw a rock, you'll find a movie that deals with this topic. But in The Crying Game, it was brand new. But what was totally overlooked or overshadowed by that was that it's a, a pretty remarkable movie about the IRA. So for... I know, obviously, it's, it's tough to discuss the Troubles without exciting a lot of uh, really intense political debate, but how would you describe the, the backdrop of the IRA and the Troubles as, um, as a way of kind of diving into the crying game? Yeah, I mean, well, Neil Jordan, his first film, Angel, also dealt with the same sort of, the same sort of story of IRA man, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, because when you have the IRA from the the the, the 1916 rising and the war of independence and stuff they those guys were kind of considered okay guys and like um honorable guys but when when the war started up again in 1969 the, the, this new version of the ira as it were were unless to us down here in the republic i mean i, I don't mean the people up in the north because but to us down here in the republic there was a very kind of um uh Torn, people were torn between are these guys terrorists or what you know and um, that, that was the, that was the sort of uh, that was the way they were described down here whereas the people in the north uh, the especially the Catholic community um, needed these guys because they were being terrorized by uh, orange men Protestant uh, terrorist groups or Protestant, you know people just um, marching to their to, to their neighborhoods and burning them out and all kinds of stuff like that and and, and no help the, the police was 100% Protestant and um, the British army when they when they when the British sent the army into um, the north in 1969 it was to protect the Catholics you know it wasn't to um, but but it, it slowly became the opposite of that the army were there to oppress them as well so it's a bit yeah it's I mean for, for me growing up here it was always in the background every night on the news we used to jokingly refer to the news as the happy news because it was just misery it was just every night bombings kneecappings punishment beatings you know uh, all kinds of stuff just on a daily basis and it in the eight, late 80s and early 90s it really kind of reached a zenith um people thought it was just going to go full on full scale war because it was um, there was just so much stuff going on and so many big major uh, atrocities happening and then um neil jordan you know he, he he came out with this film with a background of the british soldier uh, who is, is kidnapped by the ira and this was quite a common occurrence there was a lot of uh, the different guys who disappeared over over the years and most of them ended up the, the same way you know but the remarkable thing about the um, the, the crying game was because it was pre-internet the the secret didn't get out you know people kept the secret the the, the twist in it so it, it, when people got to see it, it, it they were blown away by it, you know and yeah and this is one of the it, first big massive miramax success stories i mean I, I know they were involved with my left foot as well but the the ascent yeah. of miramax in america as being this distributor of foreign films that really pop in a major way the crying game was a huge part of that yeah it was you know um it, it just it was just major really for us again it was the first time and, and this this we, we did see as an irish film you, you know there was no dispute because it had started in ireland that the main character was this uh, ira guy who was kind of feeling guilty about having been involved in in, in this uh, this killing even though he wasn't like sort of directly responsible but um yeah so it, it, we we did see this as an irish film and uh, it, it kind of um 
excited just because it won it won an Oscar, you know, and then for for best original screenplay, and uh, that really did put um, Neil Jordan on, on the map in terms of a, of a household name, and uh, he he went on then to to continue making films, and he went on more to making Irish films then really I think uh, than rather just making British films, um, and more or less around the same time, Jim Sheridan then made In the Name of the Father which was also dealing with, uh, not the IRA as such, but it was dealing with the, the, these four people who'd been uh, falsely imprisoned, the Guildford Four, um, for an, an alleged uh, uh, offence. They were they were thought to be the Guildford bombers, these uh, pubs, these bombings in the pubs in Guildford that went off, um, and these four innocents were just picked up and confessions were forced out of them and they were sent away for life, basically. And uh, they spent like um, 15 years in, in behind bars. And even though the British had, at this point had found out who the real guys were, but they didn't want to... Um, they didn't want the embarrassment. They, yeah, so they just thought they'd leave these guys there and who's going to who's going to help them. And, you know, when I was growing up as a teenager, young teenager and stuff, uh, every Saturday in Dublin city centre, there was like rallies for these release the Guildford four, release the Birmingham six and various other um, in people who were incarcerated falsely by, by the, the British authorities. And uh, while the real guys were free, you know, and, um, so like I mean, people didn't support you know you know people weren't um, supporting the IRA bombing campaign in, in London or in in England. Um, it wasn't something like you cheered about when you heard. Um, really. Um, so this, th- th- these two films came out back to back, and it was kind of putting our history as such in, in the spotlight. And um, well, as an I'm American, showing... the opening of In the Name of the Father is particularly illuminating when you just see Belfast in 1974 in complete and total chaos almost yeah. like a war zone, even though there was technically no war underway. And Daniel Day-Lewis and his friend, like they aren't even really doing anything, and suddenly they are being pursued as if they've tried to do some horrible, violent act. And it was horrifying in a lot of ways seeing it. And I feel like yeah, if you just want to get a, a glimpse from a cinematic perspective into what it would be like to live in Northern Ireland in the early 70s, that's a great little snapshot but what do you make – I know there's some pushback on the film by producer Gabriel Byrne who optioned the book, produced the film, was executive producer. But I know that he was frustrated with some of the liberties taken with the story in terms of putting the father and the son in jail together and yeah. things like that. Like I've never read the book and my knowledge of this historical event comes solely from seeing the film and then reading a little bit on Wikipedia. So it, that wasn't an obstacle for me. But I know for some purists, they disliked some of the changes made to the actual history. Yeah, but I mean, you, you can't expect to, to like get your history from films. I mean, you get an overview of history, and it, it may inspire you to go read something else. But you, you, you filmmakers have to be able to give have a liber- the liberty to change stuff to make it more cinematic. And in the case in the case of uh, in the name of the father, it just worked better that the, the father and son shared a cell and that they were in the same prison, even though they weren't probably even in the same prison. Uh, and also the the, the barrister um, the, who uh, got them off, you know, she she wouldn't have been allowed to speak in court either you know she would have had to deal with it with, with the uh basically a representative i think she was the solicitor and they would have had to have a barrister in court who would argue the case but it didn't work cinematically so they had to take liberties and yeah emma thompson's fine. incredible in this she does she does a great job yeah and, and you know i don't see anything wrong with that i didn't see it then because i didn't know about it but now knowing it it, it doesn't seem to be a problem for me i mean you can always if, if there's a story that's about the that, that's trying to tell uh, about 
real people, you're almost going to have to take liberties just to make it work for screen because otherwise it's just that this happened, that happened, then this happened, and it doesn't really uh, make it interesting, you know? Yeah. So, well, um, speaking of Daniel Day-Lewis's, we mentioned earlier how invested he gets in his roles. Well, for this, apparently, he lost 30 pounds, and then he would spend the night in jail cells as crew members would throw water and, like, verbal abuse on him. Yeah, like, he, he, he underwent, like a, I think, like a 24-hour interrogation by real police like he under he underwent a real t- an interrogation for like twenty four yeah. and that just, involves just for like him to ha- ear twisting and being punched oh, in the gut. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, not you know, fun. All the while, while, while he was perfecting his uh, Belfast accent, you know, this is this this is what he put himself through. And, and I mean, for if if my left foot didn't cement uh, Daniel Day Lewis as being an Irishman, then this film did. After this, then there was no argument, you know. And and what's the that distinction point, between the Belfast accent versus like the Dublin accent? Because that's what for Americans, obviously, we have different accents around the country. But like when I, I remember going to to England a few times, and you'd go from like London to York, and you're like, whoa, the accents quite different now yeah. by the time you get up into scotland and edinburgh obviously you're in a totally different universe but what what, what would be the main oh, difference between a belfast accent and a dublin accent it's it's very different i mean it's hard to describe but i mean it's closer to sort of an american accent really for us it's i, I don't know um we used to we used to always put on like a Daniel Day Lewis like accent. My father died in a British prison. You know, this this that, that's a kind of a, his Belfast accent as opposed to the Dublin accent. But um, it's very different. I mean, even in Dublin, you know, we have different accents: South Side, North Side, uh, Inner City. It's all very different. And Ireland is just like that. You can go from literally w- one end of the street to the next in some small village, and you've got different accents. And and even up the north, there's many different act. The Belfast accent is different from the. Di- from the dairy accent and so on and so forth. Do you have an actor but, who has your favorite Irish accent, who like and the accent that for you just represents the, the musicality of the Irish uh, Irish accent? You mean from Ireland itself? From Ireland itself. Like who, like, I mean, because they're different, obviously in America yeah. you've got different accents from all over, but like you have different people whose accent is like just so charming and charismatic to listen to. But is the, do you have like your ultimate Irish actor who kind of represents what like the Irish yeah, language should sound like? I mean, I would have. I mean, I, I would have had in the past, you, you know, especially when you had guys like Richard Harris, for instance, who had this wonderful, wonderful voice. Um, but, um, you know, these days, I don't know, because, I mean, when you think about actors these days, you've got Saoirse Ronan, Colin Farrell, and they're just kind of, they're just regular, familiar um, accents that are kind of, that I'm used to hearing around Dublin. Um, so I don't really know. I don't, I don't really think of... Um, I don't really think there's an actor that I would think, oh, I really like. Not, not like in the days when you had guys like uh, Richard Burton, for instance, with the, with his his Welsh Welsh accent, and, yeah. which was just a remar- or remarkable. Or Anthony Hopkins uh, representing Wales as well, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. I, I mean, here it was Pedro O'Toole or, or, or Richard Harris, you know, and um, th- they were our uh, outstanding Irish voices out there. But um, nowadays, um, no, I mean. A lot of them. Okay, I mean, even like you got Michael or Michael Fassbender, who's kind of more or less. I think he was born in Germany, but was was raised here. He's got a kind of Cork accent, which is kind of which he's kind of 
smooth it down into a kind of mid-Atlantic accent. You what know? about so, Brendan Gleeson? Because if any, if I came in with any like any one takeaway from my preparation for this episode is that for the last Brendan thirty Gleason's years, <laughs> yeah, Brendan Gleeson is like the John Wayne of Irish cinema. Or he's like the yeah. Jean Gabin of French cinema. Like he's Absolutely. worked with all the greats, and he's had so many yeah. remarkable roles, and just decades upon decades of astonishing performances of all different shapes and sizes. And if any, if anybody I, I, for me represents kind of the essence of yeah. Irish cinema it's got to be Absolutely. Brendan Gleeson yeah I mean and th- this is a guy who who didn't uh, take up take up full-time acting until he was in his late 30s you know he was a school teacher till he was in his late 30s he got a few acting gigs here and there I think he got a, a small smallish role in in Braveheart and then he decided okay I think I'll give this a, a go full-time and he hasn't looked back and as you said I mean he's just in, in everything I, I also in my, in my uh, you know research for this episode I, I just so many films I was just watching Brendan Gleeson in, in role after role after role you know unintentionally you know so um, I mean even like you talk, the, the, the McDonough brothers they really just put him in nearly everything you absolutely know? you know no, the, the McDonough brothers have done with Brendan Gleeson kind of what like Howard Hawks and John Ford did with John Wayne in terms of showing different aspects of his persona and yeah that was I mean I was just having so much fun but like if you watch The Guard it's quite a different role from Calvary or something like that it's just it's just Sure. They're just in terms of showing his range, or maybe this is as good a time as any to talk about the snapper because he has he's a, he has a small part in the snapper in 1993, which it brings yeah. Stephen Frears into the uh, into the conversation. I mean, the snapper here, I mean, I know, like, yourself and myself, we have a great love for the commitments, but I think out of those three films, the snapper is the one in Ireland that people hold as a fondest memory of that time. You know, it's people hold that in high regard here and would look on it um, in much better terms than the commitments because it, it really endeared itself to the Irish people, um, this father-daughter um relationship and and once again Colomini you know he just uh, he knocks it out of the park um, I, I was screaming of- with laughter watching this movie <laughs> I mean I was roaring like a crazy person and uh, half the, the, the time the I was like br- I don't even understand what they're saying because the accent's so intense but I love yeah. I love it <laughs> And the guy, the guy who gets the daughter pregnant, Birches, he, like when he shouts across the street at him, and he goes snip, 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 hey Birches, snip, snip, you know, it's just it's so funny. But the daughter, you know, this this actress as well, she's just so good, and and the scenes between her and the father, uh, they're so nice. And this was a, a taboo subject, you know. Ireland was a very conservative country, um, right up until the end of the eighties. You know, the church had a a strong hold on the on the um the 
the, the whole country in, in terms of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. I mean, one of the films that I didn't put on the list and should have was the Magdalene Sisters, you know, about these um, th- these young women who got themselves found themselves pregnant in the, in the 50s and the 60s who were basically taken away from their families and sent into these uh, these homes run by these laundries run by the nuns until they were had given birth and then their babies were taken off them you know uh, and this was a standard thing you know in in um, in Ireland right up until the, the, the Magdalene uh, laundries didn't close I think till the 90s you know so to have this um, father-daughter relationship where the family accepts the daughter's pregnant because it was a common thing you know the unmarried mother it was it was something that was kind of frowned upon and people would gossip about in the street but you know after the snapper it kind of opened people's eyes to just so what how normal this is and that this this isn't something that should be shame on the family and stuff so it really changed it really was a part of the change of ireland and the relaxation of the the grip of the church on uh, irish society so it it really did play an important part um in in our society when came out the snapper uh, I, um, I mean I might have the least exciting sex scene ever when you ask that she has that flashback where they've basically had this like the, a quick drunken lay on like on a car and he just says good girl as he walks off and I was like that, yeah. that is like just so unerotic and so unexciting but I think my favorite scenes have to be of the central character and her friends sitting around talking dirty in the pub with all these close-ups of their faces and some of them have pretty outlandish teeth but they're just laughing and talking all this trash and it's just these like these I mean, almost like caricatures of personalities yeah that that caused outrage because she's drinking while she's pregnant in the pub you know getting proper she's pissed not, <laughs> she's knocking back the, the 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 shorts and all and that that caused more trouble than anything else when that came out and probably still does because it's still mentioned, you know, when, when that film is is shown on television or whatever. But um, yeah, so no, it really did. It, it just showed this this Dublin life. This this is what it's like. People, um, we went and we got we went to the pub, and, and that's all changed too now, you know, because it's so expensive to go to the pub now, and you can't you can no longer drink and drive. And um, back then, people went to the pub and drove home, you know, <laughs> that's all changed um, now. But um, it shows that, uh, that that snapshot of Irish life at the time, which was built around the pub and people went and they got trashed, you know. <laughs> oh, but as I was watching happened. this, I, I kept having to resist the urge to constantly take notes or copy down the dialogue because the dialogue was so remarkable. Like, just like a little joke when he's like, what's hard and hairy on the outside? It's wet and soft on the inside. And he's like, it begins with, with the C, C it ends with a T. And has a U and end yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody is, of course, think, thinking one thing and he's like, a coconut, a coconut. And I just started cracking yeah. up or like when he's fucking with his son, all his son wants is a bicycle and then he makes, he basically plays a gag and acts like he's going to give it to him one piece at a time over several birthdays and Christmases. Like, we can give you the weed then the seat and the pump and the kids just yeah. falling to pieces and then they finally show him a bike but it's not the bike and it's like it just one like psych out after another so once again just in terms of humor charm and just brilliant yeah. dialogue this was and Roddy Dow he's adapting yeah. his own novel into the screenplay so he if you're gonna adapt it right yeah get the original novelist and he just he just hit a complete home run but Stephen Frears I think he doesn't doesn't get nearly enough love as a great director from Dangerous Liaisons to The Grifters yeah. to High Fidelity he's done so many incredible movies that are really beloved here in America but The Snapper absolutely deserves to be mentioned right alongside all this best stuff and yeah. one I think I really liked was the um 
kind of Irish version of the uh, of the Elvis tune at the during the opening and closing credits. Which which song is right. it again? I'm I'm totally blanking on which song it was, but I immediately actually, had to download it and add it to my iPad. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think the problem with the the snapper and the the van is that they weren't made as cinema movies. You know, they were made as uh, for for the TV basically. Yeah. So 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 they didn't really get that kind of renown or that they deserved. Oh, it's and, can't uh, help falling in love. Yeah, can't help falling in love is yeah. the song that opens and closes right. the movie. But it's like you suddenly hear this quintessential Irish music, but it sounds familiar. And you're like, oh, they're doing an American, like an American tune, but they're Irishing it up, Irish, and yeah, it just yeah. it gives it all this incredible flavor and power. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's very good, you know. So, um, yeah, this, this is a that, that was a big one that when when it came out and still is. I mean, it's 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 on television here more than the commitments, you know. Commitments I haven't seen for like a long, long time, but the snapper is on at least once or twice a year on the Irish channel, you know. So now Roddy Dow's he's I'm Roddy I'm saying Roddy Doyle. Roddy Doyle. Is, yeah, is he, yeah, is he still cranking out novels oh, yeah, and screenplays? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and even more so because he he w- w- when when he got when social media kind of really hit hit the thing, he, he started doing this re- this regular post on Facebook um about these two alphas sitting at a pub. So any 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 topic that kind of was in the news, he'd have these two alphas talking about it over a drink, you know. So you hear about this, you know, and like it could be Trump or it could be just about any topic was open and and that now is being developed in, into a TV series, you know. But you can find it on Facebook. If you follow him on Facebook, he posts like weekly uh, posts. It's just like a, a few paragraphs of a conversation that he supposedly overheard in a pub, you know. I think it's called Two Pints or something like that. But um, so, yeah, although he, his input is, like, yeah, he, he's continued um, a whole load of books um, and some of them have been made into films. A lot of them aren't really, um, I suppose, film material and stuff. But, um, I mean, he, he writes, um, yeah, he's, he's prolific and he's one of our big writers here you know he's one of our big um still alive writers as it were yeah that's one thing america doesn't have is that kind of pub culture i remember when i visited ireland they're showing how whether you're 80 or 15 everybody goes to the neighborhood pub whereas in america obviously we have we have these puritanical drinking laws but i feel like if you want to teach people to drink responsibly let them have a half pint when they're 15 let them hang out and see adults drinking in a normal fashion and that way people learn to drink like normal people but also just like the idea of like a watering hole where people from the, like, your neighborhood can all hang out and get to know one another. New York, we're littered with bars, but I don't know anybody that frequents these yeah. bars. It's very, I guess, um, like it's, you're very, you have like a safe level of anonymity when you go into them. And I feel like that's something yeah. that American drinking culture would benefit from the idea of what this friendly neighborhood watering hole where everybody of all ages goes just to read the newspaper and talk about current events or talk about what's going on, etc. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean. Yeah. In New York, you, you will find it in some of the Irish bars, you know, <laughs> up on Third Avenue or whatever. You'll find some of that kind of local thing. But um, but yeah, I don't know. We have a kind of um, a very strange relationship with drink, and I, I don't know if people <laughs> would necessarily agree with you that oh that we do it correctly. Because, maybe maybe, um, maybe I'm just romanticizing <laughs> as, I, I as think, uh, grass is always green or outsider looking in. Yeah, I mean. Um, Irish people these days tend to have a problem with because they're all working all the time and because it's very expensive here so they, they binge drink on the weekends and it's a, it's a it's a major problem I think here and um, 
Uh, I mean, when I was growing up, it was a little bit different, you know, but um, now it's, I mean, I, I was a bartender for 20 years, you know, and I, I loved working in the States as a bartender, but I hated working in Ireland as a bartender. Gotcha. Because, because it, it was quite depressing and very messy. <laughs> very messy and then when like Red Bull hit the scene people were coming to triple vodkas and Red Bulls and had, they were barely you could see something wrong with their eyes but they were still standing and functioning yeah, yeah like the Red that. Bull keeps you going long past the passed out pass out point yeah it's a lethal combat I have, I remember when I was in business school after I finished one of my financial accounting exams I went to a bar and I ordered a pitcher of Red Bull and vodka and started chugging that sucker. And the last thing I remember is standing by my car thinking I should dr- try and drive home and <laughs> vomiting all over my feet. And I was like, maybe I shouldn't drive home. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm past that point. Maybe I should walk home. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, uh, I didn't last long working in bars in Dublin. I, I preferred to work in hotels because you were dealing with an international crowd and it wasn't as messy. And you go to Dublin City on a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning and the place is just a mess, a wash with vomit and stuff like that, especially wow. down in the Temple Bar area. It's really out of control, you know. Um, I mean, not so much in, in local pubs and stuff like that, but yes, in the city center on a, on a weekend, it's pretty wild, you know. Fair enough. <laughs> so. Well, on your list, you've got Michael Collins not highlighted like some of the others, but I'll, just, just out of curiosity, because you've got some movies like The Wind That Shakes the Barley, with special emphasis, and obviously, when it comes to the Irish War of Independence and certain figures, it's a it's a topic that's been top, tackled many times. But yeah. why would you? I just out of curiosity, what is it about Ken Loach's approach later on that attracts you more than Neil Jordan's approach in the in the mid nineties? Yeah, I, I think with Michael Collins was very much a sort of romanticized version of you know. Um, whereas when when Ken Loach came with the Winter Shakes the Barley, he showed it warts and all. You know? Gotcha. Um, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I, I really I, I love Michael Collins the movie. You know, it's it's great. Liam Neeson. It's it's one of his best roles. You know, um, he, he's great in it. There's a few there's a few uh, like um, what's her name? Um, Julia Roberts was you know miscast, but she was kind of. She she was more or less resident in Ireland. She when she broke up with her husband, um, the the country singer, La Love It, um, yeah. La, La Love It. She came to Ireland to get over it, and she kind of endeared herself to the Irish people. And so she was here that time when they were making that, and she ended up in it, you know. Um, as did um, JFK's uh, sister. She, she plays a small role in it when. Was oh, it Car- uh, Carol Michael Kennedy? Collins- no, um, Jean, um, Jean Kennedy Smith. Oh, sorry, Carol's his Jean, daughter. Sorry, I'm, yeah, yeah. Jean Kennedy Smith was Irish and American ambassador to Ireland at the time. Gotcha. Which was so it was quite controversial. So she played this just as a small cameo. He's jumping through a, a hole in the roof into a corridor, and she's just walking past, and she goes, Ooh. but um, she was in it. But the rest of the cast, you know, um, Aiden, um, oh, what's his name, um. Another American actor. Yeah, the guy he, from Legends he, yeah. of the Fall. Um, I always blank on his name. Hang on one sec. Uh, his Aiden name? Quinn. Aiden Quinn. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Aiden, gr- Aiden Quinn. I mean, he's another guy. So he, he's an American, but he spent a lot of time when he was growing up here. He spent every summer over in Ireland. So he had pretty much a good, good Dublin accent. So he's, he's in that. And, and there's... Again, there was a lot of liberties taken with the story in this film. You, you, you know, the um, the guy Broy, played by Stephen Ree from The Crying Game, he plays the the, the kind of the, their spy within the police. Um, oh, is that is gets, Stephen Ree? I've been calling him Stephen Ray for decades. Stephen Ree is the correct Ray, pronunciation. Stephen, 
Well, that's why that's how I say it. You gotcha. know? So I'm, I could be I could be wrong too. Be a remarkable he, he, actor. He, I mean, yeah, he's he's incredible in everything. And he's he's in nearly everything that Neil Jordan ever made. But um, he, he's um, he plays the, the guy Broy in this who who um, gets killed in the film. But in fact, the, the real Broy ended up um, being the founder of the Irish Gardaí. You know, he survived he survived the War of Independence. You know, so there was a lot of liberties taken in Michael Collins too, which people didn't seem to. Uh, too worried about you know um but no michael collins is all right you know it's he's he's in ireland um we had we're still living in civil war politics time you know um almost like you know 100 years after the fact uh, our two main parties here are fina fall and fila gale and they came about during the split and fina gale is the michael collins party and fina foil is the devil era party and it's been like that ever since you know and um that was the biggest yeah, eye-opener for me watching the Win the Shakes of Barley is seeing how after Ireland had achieved independence that there was even more blood after the fact – bloodshed after yeah, the fact I mean, as the, the country erupted into a complete and total civil war about how some people felt like they hadn't taken things quite far enough. And so that was just awe-inspiring to me that things could even get worse after you've achieved most of your objectives. And those animosities are still felt, especially in, in rural Ireland. You know, they're still like kind of it's, it's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys in the States. You know, you, you've got families who probably um, are still feuding today coming from that time that's that's over through that down through the years because of the split uh, and um it really was it really was nasty and friends became enemies and brothers became enemies and stuff like that. So um and I think that we're coming now to the hundredth anniversary of that time, and they're, they're they're trying to figure out how do they commemorate these events, you know, gotcha. with, without stirring up the these without kind of getting feelings. everybody all fired up again. Well, that was one of the most remarkable scenes in Good Vibrations when they're showing how the young guys in the seventies who couldn't remember what it was like prior to the troubles. They were the ones you had to worry about because people could who could were old enough to remember a time of relative peace and harmony had a certain foundation of just how to treat your fellow human beings. And I remember even yeah. there's a, a comic book writer, Garth Ennis from Northern Ireland, who wrote a bunch of remarkable stuff. But I remember one of his stories from Preacher was set in Belfast. And at the time, it was like a, an organized crime story. But he was talking about the most dangerous people were the guys who'd grown up during the Troubles and kind of liked it that way and liked the liked, liked the action and liked the excitement and they were you got some genuinely savage characters as a result yeah absolutely i mean there was another uh, i mean there's a film called resurrection man which was about these guys up the north, the Shankill Butchers, or the, 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 it was a, a gang run by this one guy, Lenny Murphy was his name. But he was a Protestant, but he had an Irish name, and so when he was growing up, he was ridiculed and, and bullied by all the other uh, Protestant kids. So he took an, an extra hating towards Catholics, you know, and he used to uh, decapitate his victims, you know, oh. he, and. Like he had, he had a set of butcher's knives, and he he, he kidnapped people, tortured them, and basically just you know chopped them up. But um, he he got so crazy, this guy. Like that, if if he saw someone walking towards a Catholic area, he would just go grab them, whether they were Protestant or Catholic, he didn't care. And he he saw a truckload of people. He thought they were Catholic workmen, but they were Protestant workmen. And he he shot them all, um, and eventually um, the IRA had to take him out because he was just this renegade guy, you know. And, and that was a problem. Like so. so you know, violence breeds violence, and it went on for so long that there was so many people. We didn't have serial killers back then. You know, we had no serial killers in Ireland uh, because there was uh, people had outlets. You know, yeah, if you absolutely. To, you know, if you, 
Well, I remember visiting you, you a church ch- in Dublin, and they had this door there, and there was some feud that had happened centuries beforehand, and this feud just, like you said, it's, violence kept begetting violence, and it kept going on and on and on, and finally one person has a way of kind of, I guess, settling things did this gesture where he extended his arm through this doorway and held it out in like in a vulnerable fashion saying like, I'm, I, I'm exposed to myself, making myself vulnerable as a, ge- as a gesture of a, like a peace offering. And it almost turned into like a figure of speech. Like I can't remember the exact phrasing, but essentially extending one's arm, but the door was right. still there being preserved in this church. And, but it just, yeah, it seems like Irish people, they know how to hang on to a grudge. If you give yeah. Them oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and, and this is the thing, like, like we've, we've had quite a lot of, um, peace now you know like since since the peace process came in there is a generation who don't remember the, the troubles which is great and, and there are kind of great hope for the future because then um, there's still a lot of guys who you're around who yearn for that time you know because um they enjoyed it you know and, and um it's we're on very shaky ground here with brexit and all that you know um it's a very shaky piece that we have here we we have i mean it's it, if you if you ever come and go up to uh, places in like belfast you know the communities are divided by walls they call them peace walls but they're like 30 foot high walls separating communities to keep the peace you know uh, and um so it's 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 not it's it's not like um as the, as the ira uh, the the Sinn Féin leader jerry adams was famous as saying they haven't gone away you know you know they're 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 all still there, and um, things could over overnight they could like flare up again. So we're all kind of uh, you know worried at the, at this present time of what could happen. There was a young journalist shot dead there um, uh, not too long ago, about uh, five or six months ago or so. Um, she was just watching. There was a riot happening up in Derry. And uh, some some IRA guy just like leaned around the corner and fired some shots at the police, but and there was loads of people around the police and killed this twenty uh, one year old, twenty two year old journalist. You know, so um, these these things are they haven't gone away and could come back at any moment. You know, and and a lot of this um, stuff that you see in these films, like um, the wind that shakes the barley, you know, they they hit close to the bone. You know, and um, they, it's uh, yeah, it, it took I think it took a guy like Ken Loach to to to, to say these things. Yeah, you I know? mean, seeing a movie where you quite literally have a brother giving the order for a firing squad to kill his own brother at the end. Yep. It just, it really underlines just how bleak and dark and divided these conflicts become. Well, when you're talking about some of these violent topics, the next film on our list, I think is interesting because it's less political and more criminal, but it eventually becomes a political film. But John Barman's film, the general from 1998 Confess a few crimes. You know why they sent me here, don't you? Because of me, I hope. Yes, because of you. Because they think I know your wiles and your ways. And I do. It was worth my life. Do you deny that you're a Martin Cowell crime boss known as a general? Wanted for armed robbery. You look great in the telly. Unless you vacate this site within 48 hours, you will be forcibly removed. Let's go, 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 go. It used to be my life. It used to be uptight. You're the general up there amongst the famous criminals in the record book. You're loving it. 
trespass, harassment, intimidation. I've got you now, Cap. You're getting to be like me. You've had to come down to my level. This is no victory for us. You have a cleverness and there's a responsibility. You don't want your children to grow up with your troubles. You can get a job. I think I could get a job in the police. Real life story of Dublin folk hero and criminal Martin Cahill, played by Brendan Gleeson. And I saw this in the theater when it came out in 1999. It took a little while to make it to the States, but it's one of the last films that I saw when I was in college before uh, before leaving school. And yeah, it, it starts out as like this really fun kind of criminal, almost kind of lighthearted romp. But obviously, when it gets into a situation where he starts making money or doing business with people on different sides, whether you're dealing with loyalists or the IRA, you can get yourself in shit up to your ears in a big damn hurry. But uh, give me give me your, your thoughts on the general. Yeah, well, when I was growing up again, like in, in, in the 80s and stuff, the only other thing on the news at night, apart from the IRA and the troubles up the north, was Martin Cahill, the general. And he, you'd see all the time, every night, he'd be coming out of court with the hand up to the face or um, he'd be wearing it. The whole a, movie's worth watching mean, <laughs> just to see Brendan Gleeson doing that over and over and over again. It's hysterical. Yeah, I mean, he used to wear like a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. He'd have masks, the hood up. It was on every night. So we all knew it wasn't like something that we kind of found out after the fact. He, he, was, he was part of the kind of pop culture in a way um and his exploits were like um you know very famous you know he 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 pulled off these stunts he, like the cops he really did when the general came out them i mean there was some um condemnation of it because it made the cops look stupid but you know the he did make the cops look stupid he he pulled off all these stunts he used all these things that you see in the film him giving himself an alibi by spending the night in the police station was 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 what he did you know and he did he he had he, he had his council flat and and uh, he was living there and they wanted to take him out they wanted to take it off him and move him somewhere else and he was like no you stuck us here and this is where we are and I'm staying here until you let me go somewhere where I want to go so and he more or less held them to ransom and he, he stayed there they knocked the, the, the place down around him they they burned it burnt him out when he had a caravan there and then they eventually gave him this place in Rath Mines which is he makes the joke in it I want to be where me work is you know um Rath Mines is that this kind of very plush place in in Dublin upper upper middle middle class neighborhood and he had a place right in the middle of it you know and um yeah he was this large in life guy he he uh, he was very he was very feared amongst criminals but he was one of these kind of honorable criminals in that sense that you if you could call them that and um, it was a very different dublin the, the the dublin underworld has very much changed since he was killed you know when, when he was killed um it left a vacuum which was filled by these tougher guys. These guys, you've probably seen the film uh, Veronica Guerin. I don't know. I did not see it, Blanchett. unfortunately. Well, this, so, this, so after the general was taken out, some of his guys, they set up with uh, these other guys. And th this is when um, drug dealing became nasty. And it, it wasn't about like um, friends dealing drugs and stuff and uh, blah, blah, blah. It was criminal uh, shoot to kill kind of thing. And uh, this reporter 
very famously was was murdered by by this the, the gang that replaced the general and they made a film about her life and after that then things got really nasty but the general was kind of the last of the old school criminals you know he wasn't out there um shooting people and killing people and stuff he was just trying to outwit the police and he pulled off some of the biggest strokes of of, of our time back then well, I love um, how he um, drops off all the cash at the bank to get a check cut to buy a home and the moment he walks out of the <laughs> bank his boys walk in and rob the cash <laughs> and they're both still there on the counter <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely you know and then and, and he was a guy because he was operating at this time of the troubles and of course the IRA and the loyalist paramilitaries were around and they were like a mafia you know you didn't you didn't operate in the, they they saw themselves as being in control of the underworld and he was a guy who kind of ran up against them and he, and he he wasn't one to like kind of give um give his like a a, a, a little uh, what do they call it a um a tribute to to these guys like here Looking here's their here's a, yeah, here's a cut from my thing. He was like, "Fuck you guys," you know. Like, this is my. You get go do your own job, you know. And I, I, he he done this big jewelry heist, uh, which the IRA had been trying to do for years, but they just couldn't figure out how to do it. And he he worked it out, and he got in, and and then they that they arrived on the scene, and they want they they wanted a cut from, him and he wasn't prepared to give it. So he was kind of. Um, he, he felt he was an untouchable guy, but and he's played brilliantly by Brendan Gleeson here. And um, I love it. it's funny. One of the, I was watching it. I was watching it last night, and one of the gang members is one of my teachers in school at the moment nice. on the masters in screenwriting. Yeah, this guy. So I, I, he he's just one of the guys, and it's it, it's just, I just I forgot that it's funny to see him there. But um, yeah, and and then he, the the most the most famous thing was he ripped off all these classic masters paint these Dutch master paintings, you know. And it, it, it was uh, an outrage, you know, and he, he, he couldn't get rid of these paintings. You know, there was no, how can you get rid of these uh, paintings? I mean, I mean there's, there's a second film that was made around the same time uh, called Ordinary Decent Criminal, which is the same story, only it has Kevin Spacey playing the general, you know. Gotcha. I, 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 they use fictional different names and stuff like that, but it's the same story. And it's not as good. It's got a few little nice elements in it, but the 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 accents are terrible in it. But th- this one is the definitive. And even even though it's got um, what's his name from the from Deliverance, um, oh, John Voight. John yeah. Voight. I, I hate you know? seeing Americans do movies over in Ireland or Great Britain because ninety nine out of a hundred of them just cannot do the accent, and they're always yeah. slipping. And you, they just they can't do it. And it's like, like when John Wayne did The Quiet Man, he did not try to do an Irish accent. Obviously, he's played an American, yeah. but he was born in Ireland. But just speak in your, your own accent or hire somebody local. But that, that always drives me. Or like when you saw um, Forrest Whitaker playing a Brit in The Crying Game, it's like, sorry, he can't do it. Like he's a brilliant actor, but he just, he just, yeah, yeah. Americans do a, or, or, an atrocious accent. Tom Cruise, he made Far and Away over here back yeah, with just, Ron Howard. It's so terrible, you know. And but look, it's the same. I mean, I'm I'm a stickler for accents. I hate accents. And Irish people condemn anyone who tries to do an Irish accent who isn't Irish. There's a few who can get away with it. Daniel Day Lewis being a case in point. Um, but we do this. We have no problem going over to America and saying, like, for me, Colin Farrell. He's at his best when he's not putting on an accent. When he's trying to do an American accent, to me, it's like it's like this mid mid Atlantic twang that you can't quite place from anywhere it's got a or you and mcgregor he does a lot of american yeah. accents and it just it yeah. sounds really off but yeah but when, but when, when colin farrell gets unleashed like in bruges 
holy yeah. shit. That's when you really yeah. see just how good he really is. I mean, that's why I really liked him in Seven Psychopaths because he's he just plays an Irish guy. There's, there's no context context given. It does not say why he's an Irish man. He's an Irish screenwriter, and he, he's just himself, and he's, he's so much better for it, you know. And same with Brendan Gleeson, you know, because I, I, when he was making this um, Mr. Mercedes uh, TV show, they wanted him originally to you know put on an American accent. He's like, look. It's best just to leave me be Irish, you know yeah. what I mean? Because otherwise, it'll just not be no good, and um, it's it's better for it, you know. But um, yeah, no, we're, we're very touchy when it comes to people trying to do an Irish accent, you know. Um, and John Void, it's you know, it's it's passable, but uh, it's, it's 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 the it's one not big flaw for me of the film. Like another big flaw, though, is sadly that uh, if you go on Amazon to watch this movie, they have this crappy colorized version. Like it was shot in glorious black and white. Watch it in black right. and white, but there people have this like mental block. But and when it's shown on cable, it's also shown in, in color. It drives me it's absolutely color, crazy. I, I, ne- I never knew that. I never knew that. No, yeah. it's, I mean, for me, part but of when the I saw charm, in the theater, it, it was glorious black and white, and it was gorgeous. But yeah. uh, also, Martin Cahill, he robbed director John Borman's house at one point and stole a gold <laughs> record. Yeah, <animal. laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I think that 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 was probably something that made him want to make, make this film. You know. And uh, it's, I mean, I love that. I love the fact that it's a Borman film, you know, because it, we, we ha- Borman had such a, a great relationship over here. As I said, um, he, he, he had started with the, he'd, he'd been over here and he settled down. And of course, he made Zardos here. And in 1975, he was appointed chairman of Ardmore Studios and he, he started implementing these changes, you know. And of course, he made Excalibur, which is, again, we kind of, it, it, it's an Irish film. We we know it's an Irish film here, even though it's the Arthur, Arthurian legend. But we we think over here, it, we it's it's an Irish film. You know, Excalibur. It's, it, but but Borman, like you know, he he's been here for so long that it was it was great that he actually made this Irish story. You know, gotcha. this the, 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 for us anyway. For me personally, I I love I love the fact you know, um, and yeah, it's good. I mean, um. It shows another side of Dublin that you didn't get to see because, again, for many years it was always either pre- priests, you know, alcoholics, or the troubles. I mean, I, I know the troubles kind of comes in in a way at the end of the, but it just shows another side of uh, the Irish uh, life that that uh, people w- we here knew because the, you know outside of Ireland in America and places that they have this kind of very kind of. Uh, traditional quaint view of ireland where it's it's it was never like that you know it's it's like any other place we've got criminals here you know we've got like most americans would like to believe that it's all shots of like um oh uh maureen o'hara and the quiet man walking through a a beautiful (laughs) field with sheep yeah absolutely Uh, and we, while we do have that, you know, we have a, a lot of other t- things as well, you know. But yeah, the, the, this guy Martin Cahill, went, at, at the in the end, he, he had dealt with the um, he had dealt with the pro or with the, uh, the the loyalist paramilitaries, you know. And th- this was a big um, this was a big deal with the IRA. And also, I mean, they they, they allude to it in this film that the um, he was he was under twenty four hour surveillance. You know, he couldn't go anywhere without the police. And on the day he was murdered, the police weren't there. You know, and and, the, and and it's known here that the police, the Irish Guard, gave the they okay. Were, yeah, well, a lot of them were sympathisers to the IRA. A lot of them turned a blind eye. So there was, of course, people. Someone passed the word, and they wanted this guy taken out. He was making them look like idiots, and they, he was taken out. You know, so it's um, but it's it's dealt with very kind of tender fingers in in this film because they didn't really want to uh, say too much or insinuate too much, you know? Well, let's but, move into uh, the 21st century because we've got a bunch of new directors 
uh, in these movies that you chose where you see this yeah. incredible emergence of just a, a new generation of talent, many of whom have gone on to become massive filmmakers. And one of the first ones on your list that I really enjoyed was Intermission from 2003, which is directed by John Crowley. And John Crowley, I mean, he recently did Brooklyn, which was a huge hit here in America. Goldfinger yeah. was a big flop, but I, I, I did a YouTube video kind of defending it, just saying that people were ganging up on it for, for no apparent reason, apart from some right. fabricated reason. But Intermission is his directorial debut. And I think this is a movie that is highly deserving of rediscovery because it's so rough, and but also so funny. and has one of the best casts assembled yeah. for any of these movies but what, what what's going on with intermission yeah i mean intermission it, it's um it, again it I, I watched it the other night and um i hadn't seen it since more or less it came out and so it kind of looked a bit dated in some in terms of some, some of the cinematography was kind of reminiscent of nypd blue these kind of zooming angles zooming shaking cameras and stuff but it's basically these stories of these people um these four i mean it's funny the opening scene is colin farrell talking to this a uh, young woman working yeah. in the shop. Kerry Condon, who, if you, yeah. Kerry Condon from Better Call Saul, you know, and uh, it's it's such a, it's such a great opening of of the film. Um, it, and I think um, Colin Farrell at this time he'd already kind of been discovered. He made some big films, but he'd kind of been going through a rough patch with uh, maybe his own sex tape and a few other things. So and he had kind of committed to this film. So he came back and and done this film and. Uh, yeah, the cast is, is superb. Uh, Colomini once again back as the uh, the, the the cop wanting to, wanting to be uh, uh, getting some recognition, and it, it's there's a great cast of characters. Um, and Kelly McDonald is one of my favorite '90s crushes from Train Spotting. Abs- I adore oh, yeah, her. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and of course, she's tried to do an Irish accent there too. And All right, now, because- so how? challenging is it for the Scots and the Irish to imitate each other? Because obviously you've got Brendan Gleeson doing a Scottish accent in Braveheart. And for Americans, we tend to just like, oh, well, it sounds kind of different, so they must be getting it right. But when you're watching a movie where the Scots come over and try to do an Irish accent or when the Irish try to do a Scott accent, like, d- does yeah. it make your skin crawl? Yeah, well, for, person, for me personally, yes. When I seen Kenny McDonald, I was like, Giving, giving her extra attention just to see how she was doing, but she was she wasn't bad, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's the Scottish accent is very different from the Irish accent, you know. So um, it, it it may sound similar if you're coming from further away. So, um, but no, she's she, she's quite passable, I have to say. Um, and you know, it's it's um, Kelly McDonald. I give her a pass anyway, you know. So fair enough. But um, yeah, it, it's a great story. That and there's another actor in this. I am. Um, I can't remember his name now. He, he plays the friend who was getting the porn and, and stuff. He's popped up in so many films I watched over the last few days. You know, he, he was he was in uh, Six Shooter. Are you remember um, David he, Wilmot? Yeah, you, you know, he was. He, yeah, he, he pops so up many, in he pops up in like all these twenty first century he, movies. He's, 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 he's the killer in the general. He's the killer. He's the guy who shoots Martin Cahill in the general. Yep. You know, he, he just kept popping up over now. And I was thinking, why don't I know this guy's name? He's in you know? Calvary. He's he's in all these movies. Yeah, he's in Calvary. Absolutely. So, um, so it's it's a great cast. Um, and yeah, I mean, Intermission came out, and it really was a it really was a big hit here. Um amongst the young people of course um, and it's just some funny things this 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 guy um uh, the, the guy who runs the shop you know the, the the manager he has he's obviously spent some time in the states and he has these like as they say in america as they say in the states these these things that he says and it's it's so funny killian murphy's in it as well um, he also um 
it's it's one of his earliest. It's not not his earliest. I think Disco Pigs was. Um, I guess the first what, thing I saw him in was Twenty Eight Days Later, which might be like a year before this. But yeah, right. I, but obviously this is very young Killian Murphy, and he's obviously now like a massive star with like Peaky Blinders and things like that. But yeah, yeah it's great seeing him. But he's incredible in the Wind That Shakes the Barley as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, he's he, he's fantastic. I mean, he's 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 a great. He's one of our great act, exported actors nowadays. But yeah, in this, it's all it's it's basically friends trying to find love. Um, his his woman has left him. She's dating this other guy, who's a bank manager, and the the, um, the Colin Farrell guy wants to rob the bank, and it's just a kind of almost a farcical uh, film of again of this time and, and it's, but great. it's I mean, farcical I, but it also is it has a lot of darkness because there's so much sudden abrupt violence scattered throughout it so you have all these people looking for love and having these hysterical scenes like when they go to the 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 swingers bar or the like the the, the, the singles bar and you have all these yeah. older women kind of preying upon younger men and it, like some of that stuff's absolutely hysterical but then you'll have like you said the opening scene of Colin Farrell suddenly abruptly punches this girl in the face after he successfully seduced her because he's about to rob the place the, yeah. the, the violence really yeah. shocks you and catch and catches you off guard but then you'll have really funny things like the actor who plays Roose Bolton in Game of Thrones he's he's dating Kelly McDonald in this and he's like whipping his dick out for her right as her mother like walks in he's like abruptly trying to yeah. like, trying to put it away <laughs> so yeah it, that's what I love this movie when it's funny it's really funny but when it's traumatizing it really shakes you up yeah no it, it was great and uh there was a few other characters in there. There was an actor in there, uh, Carl Shields, who I actually worked with. Um, and I, I'd forgotten that he was in it. He plays the, the drug dealer that he, Colomini character, goes to the to, to show, to, to bring the reporter to the show, and then he, he beats him up, you know. Um, and so, yeah, uh, no, Brian F. O'Bearn, or Brian, the character plays Mick. What's that actor's name? Um, I'm not sure now. He's been in a um, bunch of stuff, but I, he, <laughs> I love how he, when he's his car is hanging over that, that canal and the little boy the, the instead kids. of helping him jumps on the back to shake it and make it fall in and then of course he ends up in a wheelchair as a result but later on you see him in the pub and there's another guy who's in a wheelchair who's pissed that there's oh, like, the other guy. yeah he's got some competition now and so they of course have to have like a wheelchair race totally shit face in the bar so yeah it's this movie is just it's so full of life and it's so spontaneous it has this incredible electric energy. And so this was one of the big surprises for me that I hadn't heard of prior to my preparation. And I just I, I just totally surrendered over to it. And again, it shows you this pub culture, the, the, this Irish pub culture, where you got this old guy in the wheelchair that he's paralyzed. And so people have to hold his drink up for him. and But they have to listen to him in the process. It's just so funny, you know. And in the end, that, that you see uh, Killian, Killian Murphy just bring, leans him back on his back and puts the drink down on the floor beside him with a straw. And Absolutely. And drink, drink away, you know. But yeah, no, it was great. It, it, it was really um uh, yeah, for the, for the time when it came out, it, it kind of blew everybody away it, again because it was a, it was a, it was a film for young people, and this this was the difference between the films that were being made were for the younger generation, whereas before they would have always been more for an adult or a grown up kind of uh, sensibility. Awards and, contenders, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and people started making because because the 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 teenage and the, and the early twenties market for cinema was was huge and, and I mean we have one of the highest uh, cinema attendances per capita in the world in in Dublin and even even now you know so um 
yeah, this, this was definitely one that uh, hit big for hit big yeah. for people. young people. They just they, they they want a movie with a pulse. They need something that's visceral. They need something that's exciting. But what's so exciting is around this time you see all these new filmmakers emerging, like the McDonough brothers. Is that how you pronounce it? Is it McDonough or McDonough? Like, Mac, Mac, McDonough, McDonough. McDonough. But you have you have yeah. Martin McDonough with this. I mean, the following year was Six Shooter from two thousand four, which is yeah. won the Oscar for best live action short. But it's one of the darkest and funniest shorts I've ever seen. This morning, I was showing my lady friend the one particular scene where you have a, a story about a cow at this like cow fair where it has a, <laughs> this expanding gas problem, which can be fatal. And this one guy steps in and knows how to solve the problem and starts shoving a screwdriver into its side to let the air out. He says, oh, but this is the same kind of gas that you have in your stove. No one believes him. So he lights the, the, the gas. So you have these projectile flames come out. But it's like, oh, but I guess a little of the fire went back inside the cow. And it just, it explodes, sending guts and bones and sinew in all directions. I mean, I was, I, I, I like dark humor. I, I really thrive on dark, dark humor. And Mark McDonough might be the foremost expert on dark humor of the 21st century, but this is an incredible yeah. directorial debut. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, but like getting on to Martin McDonough, th there's actually something. So w one of our very earliest films back in the, in the 20th century that in, in I think it was in 19, um, what was it? Uh, 34 man of Aaron. Robert I've seen it. Flaherty. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, guy I, who did Nanak of the, of the North and a bunch of other great movies. Yeah, Where the Robert Flaherty? I, I, is that how you say his name? Robert Robert Flaherty. Yeah, I mean, he come over here and he, and, he, and he done that, and his story was quite crazy. But 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 um, that film inspired Martin McDonough to write his play, The Cripple of Inish Man, which is set on on the Aran Islands during the time of, of the, that this film has been shot. You know, I don't know if you've seen any of the, uh, McDonough's plays. I was it. Uh, did he write a Behanding in Spokane? Yeah, and then... Um, I saw the handing of Spokane with Sam Rockwell and uh, friggin' um, Christopher oh, Walken right. here in New York. Oh, uh, and it, wow, was, it was astonishing. I mean, it was really good. Yeah. So that was my first exposure to him. But I didn't make the connection between the two of them for years until I saw Seven Psychopaths. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so, um, I mean, Martin McDonough, again... He's just a he's just a genius, you know. And when you see in Bruges, for instance, it's it's just a masterclass in screenwriting, <laughs> you it, know. I'm, he's a, I might be willing to say that in Bruges is my favorite screenplay of that decade. Like I'd have to think long and hard about it, but as I was watching it, rewatching it. I was, I was like, there, there are movies that I like more than in Bruges from the first decade of the 21st century. But in terms of dialogue, like I can't yeah. think of a movie that I would regard as better. Then in Bruges, yeah. it makes me scream like a diabolical villain while watching. I, I, I love yeah. it in Bruges. Well, the boy is suicidal, honey. He's a walking dead man. Keeps going on about hell and purgatory. When I phoned you yesterday, did I ask you, Ken, will you do me a favor and become Ray's psychiatrist, please? No. What I think I asked you was, could you go blow his fucking head off for me? He's suicidal. I'm suicidal. You're suicidal. Everybody's fucking suicidal. We don't all keep going on about it. Has he killed himself yet? No. So he's not fucking suicidal, is he? He put a load of gun to his head this morning. I stopped him. He... This gets fucking worse. We were down the park. Let me get this right. You were down the park? What's that got to do with fucking anything? Let me get this wrong. 
Not only have you refused to kill the boy, you've even stopped the boy from killing himself, which would have solved my problem, which would have solved your problem, which sounds like it would have solved the boy's problem. It wouldn't have solved his problem. Ken, if I had killed a little kid, accidentally or otherwise, I wouldn't have thought twice. I'd have killed myself on the fucking spot. On the fucking spot. I'd have stuck the gun in my mouth on the fucking spot. That's you, Harry. The boy has the capacity to change. The boy has the capacity to do something decent with his life. Excuse me, Ken. I have the capacity to change. Yeah, you do. You have the capacity to get fucking worse. Ah, oh, yeah, now I'm getting down to it. Harry, let's face it. And I'm not being funny. I mean, no disrespect. But you're a cunt. You're a cunt now. You've always been a cunt. And the only thing that's going to change is you're going to become an even bigger cunt. Maybe you have some more cunt kids. Leave my kids fucking out of here. What have they done? You fucking retract that bit about my cunt fucking kids. I retract that bit about your cunt fucking kids. Insulting my fucking kids? That's going overboard, mate. I retracted it, didn't I? And, and Ralph Fiennes you know, is just superb as well. When, when he comes into it, Ralph Fiennes, he's just hilarious, you know. He's, he's just this, like, like you've never seen him in anything else, you know. But then, um, but yeah, it worked really well. I mean, um, in Bruges, um, fo- following on from his success with the with with the uh, six shooter, which 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 gained the Oscar, of course, he was given money then to by by the, by the Irish Film Board to, to make In Bruges, and um, it's it's just a fantastic film. Um, well, apparently, Martin uh, McDonough, when he went to Bruges, he both sides of his reactions to the city are represented by these two characters because on one part of him, he's a very cultured, erudite like film buff and he was responding to all this wonderful medieval architecture. On the other hand, he wanted to get laid and get, and get wasted and raise hell and he didn't really have an outlet for it there. So he was really frustrated and so this, these characters started to emerge in his mind and seeing Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell together, it starts out as this kind of lovable kind of I don't know, like a cops and robbers movie. These guys are just hiding out and just getting into trouble. And then it just gets darker and more profound and more emotional. Yeah. And it just, it goes to all these unexpected places that you never anticipate from like the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie. And the second time I watched it, I liked it even more than the first time. I couldn't believe how remarkable the achievement was. But the humor in this, I mean, when that little dwarf guy says you don't know karate and colin farrell chops him in the shoulder he's like ah and he falls over i, I can't yeah, i can't handle it it's, it's just too goddamn funny yeah absolutely i mean colin farrell is, is he's both hilarious in this but also he's so touching and, and his acting like when he when he's crying and he's upset it's so real you know he's 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 absolutely it's got to be his best performance i think ever um he, he, he's just so good and colin farrell making all these you know references to uh, her Villa Chase or, or whoever the guy from Thai Bandits and stuff um, it's just so funny um, and then of course it, it, it just has this you know brings in the, the, the drugs he has the drugs he's, 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 he's talking about ketamine and all these other things that uh, you just don't normally hear mentioned in, oh and in he's films. talking to, the, uh, to the, the dwarf and the hooker and he's they're explaining like who they are and what they do and finally he's like you guys are weird do you want some cocaine? He's like, I got LSD and that, and, and I got other things as well. Because earlier, Colin Farrell was getting it on with this insanely beautiful girl who lured him in for the express purpose of her ex-boyfriend robbing him. And he ends up like shooting like the robber in the eye with like a blank and blinding him and stealing all their drugs. But the night just get there's a spontaneous, unpredictable, savage energy to this movie that most movies 
we did, we live in just a hypersensitive times. Most movies would be scared to death to go to any of the terrain that this movie very freely and aggressively and gleefully explores. And it's just so infinitely quotable. I think 20, 30 years from now, this is going to be one of those movies that like people just standing around quoting like the Big Lebowski, like, you know, Harry, it's an inanimate fucking object. It's like, you're an inanimate <laughs> fucking <that>. object. <laughs> Absolutely no. That that it, it has it has that. That's one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite moments. That I have to say um, with with uh, Ray Fiennes on the telephone. <laughs> I mean, people talk about Grand Budapest Hotel for like his big m- movie where he's so funny, but I think he's far funnier in this. And he's so creepy and eerie when he's on the phone with Brendan Gleeson. And he's so wounded by the idea that Colin Farrell might not like Bruges. He's like, why Why would he not like Bruges? It's like a fairy tale. And like he just he's <laughs> it's such a strange, unpredictable character. And and then all these lines that now would be considered horribly un PC, but like when uh, Colin Farrell's like, all right, well, here's my gay beer from a gay friend, and I, here's a normal beer for me because I'm normal, and, and those things like that. <laughs> it's just he's an unapologetic guy, and but I, he just makes me laugh and laugh and laugh. Or, or when, when Brendan Gleeson insu- insults Ralph Fiennes' kids, you know, <laughs> you, you and your, your fucking bastard kids, or your uh, your, your cuntish kids, you know, he's like, take that back about my cuntish kids. Yeah, he's like, know? that's going overboard, <laughs> mate. Insult my fucking. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this film. I mean, in terms of screenwriting, you know, these it, it just shows the mastery of, of Martin McDonough. You know, he has he has this whole thing of uh, plant and payoff down to a T. You know, with the with Ray Fine saying, "You but you can't kill a kid. If you kill a kid, I have to kill myself." You know, and then the the the, 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 whole, the whole thing with with, with the uh, dwarf guy. You know, you <laughs> know, and, and and he thinks right to the end, and then he thinks that he's actually killed the kid. So yeah, he stand he's by planning his. all these seeds. Like in the first half hour, it all just feels random. Like why why are they on a film set? Why are they meeting? This midget. Why? What? Why? How are all these things connected? It just seems kind of haphazard, yeah. and then it beautifully all dovetails together by the end, where you see, oh my god, like we're in the hands of a master storyteller who understands structure and drama and humor, and it yeah. all just it all comes together for such an, an enormous emotional payoff that you just don't see coming at all. And just Brendan Gleeson's his sacrifice to save his friend because he's obviously shot in the leg, he's shot in the neck, and the only way he's coming to warn his friend that uh, Ray Fiennes is coming for him is by hurling himself on the top of this building. So just emotionally, the movie is so much more profound than you expect from the outset. Yeah, and, and even like you know, it's funny. So Ray Fiennes, he comes over because he wants he wants to make sure that the, the, the hit's going to happen, and he runs into the skinhead guy who. Colin Farrell is blasted in the eye, but he's got no sympathy for him, even though the guy can lead him to Colin Farrell. He's like, yeah, you, you fucking deserved it. You know what I mean? Just, well, to be honest, it sounds like it's all your fault. He's like, what? It's like, I mean, basically, if you're robbing a man and you're only carrying blanks and you allow your gun to be taken off you and you allow yourself to be shot in the eye with the blank, which I assume that the person has to get quite close to you, then yeah, really, it's all your fault for being such a poof. So why don't you stop whining and cheer the fuck up? I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, no, yeah so sparkling or, or, dialogue. I, I put this dialogue, take any great you know, uh, like fast-paced comedy from like the 30s or 40s or from any era, I, I would place Mark McDonough's screenplay right up there with the best of them. But also because, um, but unlike the movies in the 30s and 40s, this movie's horrifically profane with more fucks and cunts per minute than probably I- any movie I've ever written. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen it's 1.8 or 1.8 fucks a minute, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. But yeah, and, and Colin Farrell with, with the guy he thinks is an American uh, tourist, you know, he's like, 
this Vietnam, he says, this is for Vietnam, this is for John Lennon. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And at the end, the guy's a Canadian. He you goes, know, that's for John like, Lennon, you Yankee fucking cunt. <laughs> and it also goes like a Jackie Chan movie because then like the girl swings a bottle at him, he do- drops that, or ducks under it and punches her. Yeah, this movie is pure, sheer movie-going pleasure from start to finish. And it's definitely not for everybody because some people don't like their movies to be savage. Like Some people find this movie to be upsetting. But for people who like movies that go to the dark side, they're going to just be in ecstasy from start to finish. I think this is, yeah. there's a case to be made for this being the strongest movie on the entire list that you, uh, that you cooked up. I, I agree. I mean, I, I, see, I mean, who knew though, when, when, when this film came out, who knew that uh, Martin McDonough had a brother, you know, and, and then like just a, a couple of years later, John, John Michael McDonough comes out with the guard. Which and, I also love. It's incredible. And I'd never even heard of it until you sent me the list. It's so funny, you know. It's it's just hilarious. I, I mean, and uh, again, it's it's taking risks. It's taking risks that you you wouldn't expect, you know. And it it deals with the kind of racism and all this sort of stuff. Uh, Don Cheadle is just is just so good. He, he's, he's he's the perfect uh, foil for Bre- for Brendan uh, Gleeson's guard, you know. Well, in uh, the eighties and nineties, we had a lot of Hollywood movies where it'd be black cop, white cop put them together and see what happens. Or, you know, in the case of like the Rush Hour movies, like, you know, Asian cop, black cop. And it's it's, it's as classic a formula as you can hope to come up with. But the formula kind of went away and it's kind of died out. And the guard is by no means a traditional entry in that stereotypical kind of formula. But it does have scenes that feel like that where you have these the study and contrast and this insanely delightful comedy that emerges between these two guys who could not be more worlds apart. But Brendan Gleeson... Man, he like in Bruges. Obviously, he's the guy who loves culture, and he's the guy with the heart and a soul. He finally gets to really cut loose when you see him like bringing in those girls from uh, from Dublin for a weekend dressed, of pleasure, dressed as guards. Yeah, dressed as guards. <laughs> and one of them, he when he sees that one of them's wearing a wonder bra, and she's like, "Oh, well, I've got really small tits." And he's like, "Oh, that's right, I've got a really small cock." And they, they just like <laughs> just throw down. <laughs> I mean, once again, screaming, nothing but screams of laughter. And then later on, when he's got a gun pulled on him, he's kind of rubbing his crotch with his finger and he's claiming that he might have gotten like crabs or he picked up something from the girls. But it's all a setup so that he can kind of casually put his hand down his pants and pull out a gun and shoot the guy right in the heart. And it's the same guy who shot him in the general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's very funny. I mean, it's just, it's just great. And I love to see this idea of the, the crooked guard because they're out there, you know, they're out there, the, the guards that, that uh, do drugs in, in their time off, you know, and uh, he, he's just hilarious. It, uh, oh, it was just great to see him um, doing it. And, and it has this kind of Western vibe that, you know, uh, the, the Irish, the, the West Coast of Ireland is perfect for this kind of uh, setting, you know, this, 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 the, the landscape and stuff. Oh, when Don uh, Cheadle's he, trying to ask questions, he's trying to do some research because Brendan Gleeson's having his day off and he just refuses not to have his day off. But when Don Cheadle's meeting all the locals and they won't talk to him. Or if they do, they don't speak English. And it's like this total, complete, obstinate hostility where he's just getting nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> And 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 like you were talking about earlier, they, they, they pretend to speak Irish. You know, they they pretend to speak Irish just because they don't want to have to talk to them. You know, but um, yeah. But I, with Brendan Gleeson's character in this, I love the almost kind of innocent, naive, casual racism of the character, where he'll say things that sound, you know, in in our heightened, sensitive times, like, "Oh my God!" Like you're not allowed to say that. Slide. Now the men we believe to be involved in the trafficking are Francis Sheehy Skeffington out of Dublin. Liam O'Leary, also out of Dublin. Next. 
Clive Cornell out of London. Next. And James McCormick out of Limerick. Now, these men are highly dangerous. And if, and if you do make a... Yes, Sergeant. I thought only black lads were throat eaters. <coughs> I'm sorry, what? I thought only black lads were throat eaters and Mexicans. What did I call them? Do I have a word for them? Yeah, there's a word for you too, sir. But I'm not going to go into that right now. Anyway, as I was saying, these men are highly dangerous. And if mules. you are... Drug mules. That, that's enough for your guff now, Boyle. Apologize to the man. Huh? Apologize for what? Uh, you know for what? For your racist slurs, for one thing. I'm Irish, sir. Racism is part of my culture. That's enough now, Boyle. You're showing us up, man. You're a fucking knacker. Fuck off back to Dublin, you. You'll rip your fucking head off, Boyle! Sit down! No, no, lads, come on. Not in front of the American. But he says it so casually that it just... It's hard to take offense. Like when he's talking to Don Cheadle and he just assumes that he grew up in the projects. Don Cheadle's like, no, like I didn't grow up in the projects. Like I grew up, I came from a privileged background. I was a road scholar. Like I like to ski. And Glee's like, oh, I, th I thought black people didn't like to ski. Or is it swimming? Like he just, he can't help himself. <laughs> the, the racist comments just keep flowing out of him. But he's just like one of yeah. those old people that doesn't have a filter. No, absolutely. And again, it's, 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 it's this whole like the, the, the the, the mastery that he also has in, in screenwriting where he, he plants all these things like that he was a, he, he was a swimmer he, he almost made the Olympics this this uh, Brendan Gleeson's character and stuff so it's, it's kind of slowly setting it up he finds the he, the, the young fellow at the beginning finds these this IRA stash of weapons you know so that's all all, all there and of course he's, he helps himself to some of us you know it's, 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 it's classic stuff well know? give me some background on the McDonough brothers because I think they were born in London but they really seem to have embraced Irish culture in a lot of ways in terms of the talent they use. So what, what's, what's their story? Because I, I can't remember the last time two brothers emerged that are such strong storytellers, storytellers but they work separate. Like you've got the Safdie brothers and the Cohen brothers and there's, there's famous brother filmmaking teams, but they seem to yeah. enjoy working apart. Yeah, and I mean they're they're London Irish, so they they would have spent a, a lot of time coming over here uh, on their summer holidays and and so on and so forth, and, and they embraced Irish culture in terms of um, wanting to be like the, the great Irish playwrights and stuff. Um, and it's funny because they, they got themselves. I think it was Martin McDonough actually. He got himself into hot water here about. Um, six or seven years ago, he was being interviewed and he didn't like the fact that he was being referred to his films as Irish films, you know? And and, and then he um, he came out with a thing, well, I don't want to be uh, thrown in with the, the, the Irish films because Irish films are shit. You know? Oh, wow. And, and this went down like for a, a country wet that you know? is notorious for keeping grudges. <laughs> Perhaps yeah, he should yeah, have rephrased that. Oh, you better believe it. I mean, people were like, "Well, go fuck yourself," because who's been funding all your films? You know, because he, his films were being funded by the Irish Film Board, which which is now Screen Ireland, and of course, people just hate this. I mean, and some people just refuse to see his next films because. Um, of, of this statement that he came out with, and I mean, I understood what he was trying to say because, um, in, in some ways, you know, Irish film didn't have such a good reputation, or some of it didn't, you know, and um, 
and, and I like the fact that McDonough, okay, he, he didn't want to be tied down to making uh, just Irish films in terms of Irish characters set in Ireland or whatever it may be. And, and of course, he, he, he had his eye on, on America in, in wanting to go on and do uh, three billboards and stuff Absolutely. like that. Which was a major Oscar uh, winner, etc. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 he he's he's he moved perfectly in, in, into that. I mean, he, okay, he had um, seven psychopaths after that, which still had the kind of Irish connection. But once he went on beyond that, that they were no longer any Irish connection to films, you know. So um, Martin Mc or uh, John Michael McDonough, on the other hand, um, he, he I think he done Calvary after that, and then what was the one he done after Calvary? Um, didn't do so well, you know. Um, this, but this Calvary is so different from the guard because I saw the guard. I was like, all right, well, that made me laugh like a yeah. crazy person let's go right into the next john michael mcdonough and i was not expecting at all cavalry to be this really sad contemplative like meditation on suicide and child rape and just it's a story of like the only noble good person surrounded by corruption and violence and yeah. horrible people it was a really dark melancholy movie yeah, I mean, when I, I went to see that in the cinema here, and w w when it ended, the, the cinema was just stunned. You know, it was the yeah. packed room. People it's were grim. just like stunned. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I, it, it, this is a film that people over here either love or hate, you know? And I mean, the opening scene is a guy saying, I first tasted semen when I was seven years old. And then he proceed, proceeds to describe how he was orally and anally raped by a priest every other day for five years. I was like, all right. Uh, that's the movie we're watching. And Brendan so, Gleeson says, well, that's a remarkable first opening line, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but it's whatever. like, if you can't get through that opening scene, then you shouldn't watch the movie because it's, yeah. it is a very, just, it's an almost an exhaustively dark movie in a, in a lot of ways. That, But you oh, do yes. get a, a nice scene between Brendan Gleeson and his son. Is it, is it Domino Gleeson? How do you pronounce his son's name? Donal. Donal. Because in America, we always Donald, call him Domino, yeah. but I, always, I know that's incorrect. But Donal, who yeah, obviously I, had a scene with him in Six Shooter, but here we get a proper scene where uh, the, uh, the um, Brendan Gleeson's interviewing this serial killer, and he's an unrepentant serial killer. Yeah, I mean, I mean Donald Gleeson is kind of, taking after his father in the terms that he's nearly in everything these days. You know, he's in so much stuff. Oh, you know? in the Star Wars and, movies and Ex Machina, and he, he's, he's everywhere. He's all over the place. But yeah. he's, he's incredible. I'm a huge fan of Donald Gleeson. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Obviously, he's been in um, Black Mirror as, as well. But, uh, yeah, to see him in this, it, it's great. Um, he's got another son, Brendan Gleeson, who's, who looks more like him, is, is, is more... The, the, the same face, face and body structure, but he's he's generally hasn't really broken out of acting from Irish shows. Um, but um, no, all, all these character actors like this Aidan Gillen who was in The Wire, um, he plays the the mortuary, the, the the guy working in the mortuary, the doc or the doctor guy, and he tells this terrible story to to Brendan Gleeson about this kid who's who's basically locked in in, in in his body after an accident he's he he's goes blind he's goes de he's deaf he's he's paralyzed and he, he, he can't hear himself scream and it's just terrible dark stuff you know and, and all of these characters that that come into it you know they're just um the only real light <laughs> in it is his relationship with kelly riley who i've got a, a small sentimental weakness for redheads which i've mentioned on the on podcast before kelly riley is such an angel in this and so her relationship with her father gives you a little bit of relief from the yeah. un like the relentless darkness of the film with dogs getting their throats cut and churches being burned down and fighting people with baseball bats I mean, it's just yeah it's it's a it's a brutal fucking movie but 
I like I might I probably might prefer the guard, but the cavalry I think cavalry is well worth hunting down. Yeah, no, absolutely. The guard for me is a better film, but cavalry it, it's worth it's worth checking out, and you you may love it or or, or loathe it as it goes, you know. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 pretty good. Um, and and yeah, I mean for th- these two brothers, I don't know, like how is it that they both. Uh, can make such good films. They obviously have, they use some of the same actors and stuff like that. But um, yeah, they've really kind of jumped on the Irish scene and now out into the world and making great films. Yeah, international you know, so. filmmakers now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one um, film that's the total opposite of Calvary that you include in here, which has, it has its darkness, but overall it's a very positive film, but Good Vibrations from 2012, the Terry Hooley story. You yeah. get the troubles and you get, a lot of darkness in Belfast, but you also just get this unbridled, complete and total like surrender to the love of music. And so uh, yeah. that was that was a nice surprise that it could tackle so many dark topics about socialism and Marxism and the troubles and prods versus Catholics and that sort of thing. But that this guy, through his love of music, can overlook all these distinctions and differences and help create a scene and create a business where nobody had really opened any businesses in a while and just through a record shop and supporting various artists create a, a music movement in Belfast. Yeah, and, and when, the, when the band get pulled over by, by the, the British army, they can't believe that there's Protestant and Catholics in the same in the same group. You know that they're they're hanging out together. Yeah, you're like, it never and, and occurred to me to ask what they are because he, he doesn't care, which I found, it, found very refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this, this is a husband and wife director team: Lisa Burroughs, Desa, and Glenn Laburn. And I mean, it took me by surprise that they make a lot of stuff themselves. Um, they or they, they only make it together. But yeah, it's great. I, I was aware of um, of the. Terry Hooley story it had it kind of filtered down through the years so um, yeah it was um, he, I mean he'd opened this, he'd opened and closed this, this, the shop so many times but I think I suppose because of because of the undertones that he discovered the undertones that that's how it kind of filtered down here and of course John Peel was always big here in Ireland um, as a DJ that if you if you were trying to if you were trying to make it, if you could get John Peel to play your record, that you could, uh, you you were made. And he famously um, played played this uh, record again and again. You know that it just it, it 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 blew him away. The undertones with Fergus Sharkey, but um, yeah, it's 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 a great story. And and of course, he's, you see, he, at the beginning when he when he goes to opening, he brings together the the loyalist paramilitaries and and the the nationalist uh, the IRA um, to kind of say, look, this is what's going on, and uh, you guys just stay the hell out of it. It's nothing to do with you. And and I, I believe that I, I believe it's 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 what he did. You know, um, he, he he had no fear of the of these guys and that, that that was the only way you could operate you know and i think they they generally did i mean it's the most bombed street in the world at one point um but um yeah i mean he opened and he, he kind of uh, he, he changed he, he, he tapped into this because it was during the the, the punk movement and uh, the, the while all this trouble and, and shit was going down in, in belfast there was this young group of people, the, 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 the teenagers, and who who didn't care and wanted to uh, basically rock and roll, for, and uh, he provided the, the the means to do it, and, and the, the he imported the music, and yeah, he, he was just a really amazing guy in the middle of all this uh, turmoil up the north. Well, for Game of Thrones fans, we got a lot of Game of Thrones regulars in here. You got the actors who play Beric Dondarrion, as well as the actors who play the Onion Knight. And uh, if you are, if I mean, if, I feel like Game of Thrones has been a, almost like the Harry Potter franchise introduced so many wonderful British and Irish actors to. Um, 
to the rest of the world. But it was I'm I I, I read those books a million times over, and I, I love Game of Thrones, or at least the, the earlier seasons. But I guess the actor's name is um, Richard Dormer, who plays Beric Dondarrion, but also Terry Hooley. And then, of course, you've got Liam Cunningham, who pops up in a ton of these movies that you recommended, who's the Onion Knight in Game of Thrones. But yeah, I, I like Liam Cunningham quite a bit, and I really enjoy Richard Dormer as an actor as well. But of course, you got Doctor Who herself, Jodie Whittaker, in an early role in this film. Right. Yeah, Liam Cunningham. I mean, he also was in, um, which I didn't put in on, on the list, but um, Steve McQueen's, uh, was it uh, Hunger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he has this great scene with uh, with Fastbender. Um it's like a big long take that they just, just the two of them had one take thing. But uh, yeah, he's he's a great Irish actor. Of course, he's also in Wind the Shakes the Barley. Yeah, uh, he's, he's incredible in that. Yeah, phenomenal. Now, looking at the list of films, I feel like perhaps we might have accidentally kind of leapfrogged past the Wind the, that Shakes the Barley. And I, we mentioned a bit with um, the general, but yeah. before we get into these final few movies, was there anything about the wind that shakes the barley? Do you want to mention? Because obviously, as a, a one con, we, as you mentioned before, had Liam Cunningham as an incredible role in it. And he, one of the things he said about that was that he said it took an Englishman to come over here to force me in a position to examine my own history. So I feel like when it comes to Irish history, obviously, the wind that shakes the barley, it examines, you know, arguably like one of the darkest chapters in the history of Ireland. So is there anything that we did not get a chance to dig into? Because it is perhaps not the most depressing, but yeah. one of the most emotionally moving stories of, of all the films on this list. Yeah, I mean, I think when people from who are not from Ireland watch this film, they probably think, "Oh, that's a bit. That's a bit kind of, uh, kind of using its imagination that they couldn't really have brothers and against brother, you know." But yeah, um, I'm from the south. But, we had the American Civil War. Oh, we, we're we're very familiar yeah. with those uh, those scenarios. Yeah, I mean, it, it really was. Um, as I, as I said to you, like we're 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 still fighting the civil war here in, 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 with our political parties. Um, but yeah, no, for me it was just you know it was it was a great. Um, it was it was the first film that I'd seen. Um, uh, or oh, what's his name now? The the main actor, um, uh, Cillian Murphy or Killian Murphy. Killian Murphy. Yeah, it was the first film that I'd seen him in, and um, yeah, it was it, it was just great. And and of course, um, yeah, I mean. I, I'm not sure if I have anything more to add to it, really. Just, just that. Um, I mean, I was a big fan of Ken Loach, so I really loved the fact that Ken Loach was the was the guy who came over. Um, I, I mean, I'd grown up watching films like Kess and stuff like that. And also, I really, he was uh, seventy years old when he directed this. It's just a great example that you don't have to necessarily be a twenty five year old film freak to have the energy to direct a, a great movie. Ken Loach, late in life making this movie that's got so much power and so much intensity. And, and, and he took a lot of flack back home in, in, in Britain over this movie because uh, he portrayed at the beginning of the film, you see, you see the British come in and they, uh, you know, kill this guy, kill this young kid. And they, they bayonet a guy for refusing to speak English. He's speaking in Irish. And so they tie him up and bayonet him to death. Yeah. And, and th th these were, incidents that happened you know and, and it didn't go down well with the british press and he got he got like, like lambasted in the in, in the uh the british press over this film you know but um but then the later it, in the movie it, he shows that the ira in their own way could be as bad as the english in terms of and, squeezing the poor so i feel like for people who are looking for balance and a non-partisan view of a her horrible just war-torn environment, I feel like The Wind That Shakes the Barley really gets that right. We're showing the atrocities committed by many parties in a, in a giant struggle. Yeah. No, they did. I mean, there was, there was a lot of atrocities at this time because they're trying now to figure out how to commemorate this. And, um, you know, there's, there's still so many sides that say, no, you can't commemorate that without commemorating this. And what about the, this atrocity here? You know, and these, 
these guys they, they've done some nasty stuff you know um, uh, on both sides of the IRA and and the uh, the, the established um, w- when the, the free state of Ireland was established the, the, the Irish army you know they, those guys were just as ruthless with, with their former colleagues the, in the IRA and uh, that they were taking them out left right and centre guys who they'd been you know spilling blood together with uh, just, just a few years before so it was um, it was a very dirty dirty war you know dirty dirty civil war as most civil wars are yeah well the thing when so, a civil war for every it's not like they're like anytime you kill a member of the enemy you're still killing your own people so it's like, like in world war ii if you kill the enemy you're killing someone from another country but in a civil war just uh, yeah every casualty is uh they're basically doubled essentially so yeah i i, I thought the wind the shakes of barley was an absolutely remarkable movie it had been on my to-do list for many years i'm glad i finally got around to watching it and it absolutely right. lived up to its uh to its to its reputation yeah for sure well, let's talk about um, a movie that's way lighter in tone, uh, Frank, which was written by Peter Strawn, who wrote Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, one of the, I think, one of the best movies of the uh, the last decade. But I'd never even heard of Frank, and this had is. You a, of, had you heard of Lenny Abramson? No, I, I hadn't. Oh, I, I hadn't at all. So this was a, this was a new territory. But I'd obviously heard of uh, Donald Gleason and Michael Fassbender. But this one, <laughs> well, for people out there who have not heard I of Frank, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, give give the uh, the premise of Frank because it's it's yeah, a wildly it's, unusual it's, concept. I say tell everyone everything. Why cover anything up? Right. How to describe Frank? One, two, three, four. Well, there's the head, of course. He never takes it off. You think it's weird? Would it help if I said my facial expressions out loud? Welcoming smile. Delighted look. But what goes on inside the head inside that head? I find this inspiring. Is music. Something is pressing something is. Frank, people should know about you. You should be famous. Flattered grin. Followed by a bashful half smile. Stop saying your facial expressions out loud. It's extremely annoying. You've been offered a really important gig, South by Southwest, in Texas. People are interested in us. We could be big. What game are you playing? Filling Frank's head with these ideas. I can't hear you over the sound of the bubbles. Someone needs to punch you in the face. Here we go. It's going to be huge. you got to come see us tomorrow night. I promise we'll be not okay. Frank, come back! With all his issues, 100% sanest cat I've ever met. Okay. The head. Take it off. I have a certificate. Here it is. My most likable song ever. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. Kiss me, just kiss me, kiss me, Nefertiti. This is your most likable song ever? Yeah. People will love it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it starts with Donald Gleason's character. He, he, he sees this guy trying to drown himself in the sea in, in, in England, and the, there's a, a band... Uh, Van standing beside the beach, and the band standing around, and it's basically the keyboardist in this van in this band trying to commit suicide. And he's he, he's a keyboard player, so he he mentions it to them, and they say, "Well, we need a keyboard player." So he tonight, so he goes and joins this band, and the first time on stage, it just all goes 
all goes haywire and he's left stunned but he, he gets the phone call a few a, a week or so later to, that they need a keyboard player and he thinks it's just for another gig but it is in fact to, to move to Ireland to uh, a, to a little cottage out in the middle of nowhere a little a summer house and record an album and uh, he ends up um, hanging out with these guys but the main character of the, the main the lead singer of the band it, it's based on a true character it, is a guy called Frank and he wears a big fake head <laughs> which, which he never removes ever and uh, no, none of the band have seen him without his head and uh, yeah I suppose it's it, it's very strange it's very strange I mean the, and, and the rest of the band are all these really crazy Maggie Gyllenhaal is so fantastic she's, she's fantastic just, yeah plays this, especially that hot tub scene this, in the hot tub scene yeah you know she's just psych, psych and he, he's like um he just assumes that she was also in the, in the mental hospital because she's just she's just like a psycho woman to him. She hates she hates him. The band hate doesn't like this guy at all. And this guy uh, Donald Gleason's character, he thinks he's a really great singer songwriter, and, and of course his songs are all really bad. And uh, they but they but he ends up financing their album because they got no money, they got no fans, they're not even. And he he slowly. And building them up like a following. Yeah, by, he's by building a social media it. presence. They don't even know what social media is, but he's posting things on YouTube and Twitter and things like that. And yeah, these they're they're genuine. Like I don't, know, they're on they're borderline dysfunctional, but also really inspired. So they're incredibly creative, but they can't pay bills. They can't like actually like, function in society. So he's kind of having to yeah. become their their babysitter in a lot of ways. Yeah, and and their manager is also he's been in a man, in an asylum at some point because he had he had a problem with he was fucking mannequins, you know. Yeah. And, and, and the, the fast or the, the the Frank character tells him, oh, he's got over that now. He, he he's he's finally he's finally fucking real women, but he just gets them to keep still, you know. So it's, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> but also, uh, like when you have a movie with a, I mean, at this point, 2014, Michael Fassbender is a major movie star. He's played Magneto twice at this point. He's been all he's in a done movies like shame and hunger like he's a major box office draw to have your very handsome charismatic lead who's like worked with tarantino and inglorious bastards to have him just wear a a fake plastic head for like 99 percent of the movie like it breaks every commercial rule but what blew my mind was how funny michael fassbender could be just from body language and he's doing a fake american accent a really good fake american accent yeah but from his posture he communicates volumes yeah, absolutely. I mean, he really he gives a great performance. I mean, people kind of um, knocked it. As, well, some people knocked it, and they didn't think they thought this is stupid. But he really does give a great performance, you know. And it's it's such an emotional it's such an emotional ride. And for me, the you know the climax of this film when he's actually unmasked and he comes back to the band and he sings this song. It's so it's so moving, you know. This this final song that he sings, it's just. It's great, and it sounds like some sort of you know, uh, it could it could be um, what what's the not, not New Order, the band that before the um, New Order, the um, oh this uh, post punk band, I can't, um, the guy. Um, this is my brother in law's favorite band, and I'm I'm blanking on the name. They made that movie. Um, they made a biopic about them. Control. Yeah, yeah. yeah they all right, this is ridiculous. We both yeah, have the internet. What, right. <laughs> Let me look this up real quick. Control, feature film, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Joy Division. Yeah, Joy Division. Joy Division. Yeah. But in our defense, we've been recording for like three hours at this point. So. Yeah. No, but the, the, the song that he sings is kind of a Joy Division-y feel to it for me, you know? And and that kind of, the, the, the whole thing about a mental illness is kind of thrown into this 
the the the, the music and the, the lyrics and stuff like that and it's it's, it's just a great a really big payoff for me at the film I, I totally enjoyed this i mean this director lenny abramson you know he, he, he came on to the room, scene which be a big oscar winner well yeah but room but he started off with the he started off with these um very small film his first film here was adam and paul in, in 2004 about these two drug addicts and it's just basically a day in the life of these two drug addicts it's a very very sad film you know it just follows these two characters as they wake up wrecked one of them is glued to the to a piece of wood on the floor he's, he's, he's slept in glue and they finally get up and they, they spend the whole day trying to get money and everything that can go wrong does go wrong if, but this this was a big hit for him and then the second film that he made was was garage in 2007 which was also a very um small film about a guy who's kind of um he's seen as the village idiot he's he's got like maybe learning difficulties he just works in a garage in a, in a gas station kind of thing and he, he forms a relationship with a young teenage boy who starts working there and it's it, but it's misconstrued and he's mis- and it's a very tragic movie in itself so those two were his first films and it kind of put him on the thing on the road to success really and then he and then he done another film what richard did um and after that, then he made Frank. You know, Frank was uh, he, all these big actors wanted to work with him. Maggie Gyllenhaal and Michael Fassbender. You know, they they really wanted to work with this guy Lenny Abramson. And um, he's 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 very very uh, intellectual guy who who has uh, he just makes remarkable movies. And and then of course he went on to make Room, which put him onto the the world stage. And now he's like uh, he's making international movies. I mean, I, he made The Little Stranger there, I think, a year or two ago with Charlotte Rampling. Um, which was not my, not my not his best work, I don't think. And he, he's working on um, some uh, TV series um, that's coming out on Hulu this year. Um, Normal People. It's, it's gotcha. written by Sally. Well, well, what I love with Frank is that he just takes so many risks that ultimately end up paying off. Like there's this hysterical scene where the band comes to South by Southwest. They're going to play, and because Michael Fassbender's character is kind of in La La Land. He's under the illusion that because he posted a YouTube video that got 28,000 views, that that means there are going to be 28,000 fans like waiting to see. It. And the people are like, oh, well, 28,000 YouTube hits, that actually doesn't really mean shit. It's not that much. And he's sitting there with the mask, and his head just starts to lower down. And then he hides under the table in disappointment and just seeing how wounded he is and how just – it's just such a – for an actor who's on the cusp of becoming this huge star to play a role like Frank, just it's a, it's yeah. a big balls bet, and I thought he just absolutely nailed it. And I, so I applaud everybody's just risk-seeking behavior with this wildly unconventional movie. But for people out there who are like who enjoy off the beaten track tales about musicians, Frank is just like the 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 going to be pure Nevada yeah. for them. Yeah, as I said, and it's 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 loosely based on on a, on a real character, you know. So yeah, had you seen it before, Frank? I had not. No, no. I, I hadn't even heard of it. So it, this was a, a great a great discovery while getting prepared. Right. Yeah. No, I watched I watched it today, and I was watching it while the power went out today. So <laughs> I had to kind of come back to it just before the, just before we started talking. Gotcha. But yeah, it's very good. I mean, well, another new discovery uh, for me before this episode is uh, Patrick's Day from 2014, written and directed by Terry McMahon. I'd never even heard of this either, but this is. Yet another dark movie, a recurring theme for a lot of these, but also an incredibly moving love story and a movie about mental mental health issues. And it, it, this one kind of it snuck up on me in terms of how powerful it was and just also it really upset me toward the end because for people don't know, 
this movie is about a guy who I think he's schizophrenic and he's he gets very violent and he gets he starts to hallucinate when he doesn't have his pills and he doesn't get looked after. But he ends up falling in love with a girl who's suicidal, and everybody's trying to tear them apart. And then after, not only do they tear them apart, afterwards they're basically trying to use shock therapy and pills to convince them that this girl never even existed in the first place. And it just rips your heart out watching this movie as it unfolds. Yeah, I mean, well, it's 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 dealing with again. I mean, like Frank, it's it's dealing with the mental illness in a way that uh, hadn't been dealt with before. Like, I mean, can people who are suffering from me- mental illness find love, basically? And um, it's it's just a really uh, he. he uh, Patrick's Day, I just love this film. I went, myself and my girlfriend, we went to, um, we just dropped into the cinema one day randomly um, to go see something, and there was 20 screens, and 19 of them were showing the, uh, uh, what's the one, the um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, wow. And the cinema, the cinema <laughs> was just jam-packed with, with women, absolutely jam-packed, and there was just one small screen <laughs> sh- sh- showing Patrick's Day. And we went in there, and there was only about five people in the cinema, and we watched Patrick's Day. I just love know? the idea of an entire building of women lining up to watch this kind of softcore yeah. S&M franchise. It's just it's so funny how they were able to make S&M mainstream with those movies. And people <laughs> who are into S&M find those movies to be utterly revolting and repugnant. Like, they're like yeah. they're, The S&M community is not impressed by those. But for people who are like 70 and were looking for a little kinky thrill at the movies, Fifty Shades of Grey definitely scratched that itch. But I saw so many mothers and daughters going together to enjoy yeah. it. But you'd think it would be, oh, this would be a great date movie. It's like, no, but it was like a mother-daughter bonding experience, getting to have a, a wild thrill, thinking about getting choked and whipped and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Because there, there was no, as I said, there was no women there was hundreds and hundreds, or sorry, no men. There was hundreds and hundreds of women. I think we saw one guy, but there was no like girlfriend and boyfriend going to see this film. It was just uh, women only. So yeah, it was it was quite remarkable. But yeah, we caught Patrick's Day, and uh, there's a. Um, it's just a great performance from the, the the lead actor, and now his name's just slipping my mind. Now. Uh, um, his name is uh, is it Mo Dunford? Mo, Mo Dunford, yeah. So Mo Dunford, he's also been in the in Game of Thrones or Vikings. He's he's been in Vikings, um, and and Terry more or less kind of discovered this guy, and uh, he just gives great performance. Um, I, 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 as Patrick in, in, in the film, you know, and um, Carrie Fox is Carrie Fox as well. Such, you know? Yeah, she, she's. I'm mean, just. Uh, I, there are a, a lot of great uh, performances in this, but she, as a mother, she's just so like domineering and manipulative. And you see, like her back turned, and through the window, you can see her son horribly convulsing from the electric shock therapy because the mother's just decided that it's a good idea for her son never to be around this girl that he's fallen in love with. Yeah. And who wouldn't fall in love with her? This girl played by Catherine Walker. She's just a little angel. and Maybe she likes to drink too much, and maybe she's thinking about killing herself. But she, the, the, it is a true, genuine, head-over-heels, like, love-at-first-sight romance that's incredibly yeah. powerful and shot in such a beautiful, interesting way. So, yeah, it was an incredibly moving movie. Yeah, no, I, de- I definitely think, and it was, um, it's definitely Terry's uh, film. He's, he's worth checking out. You know, um, th- this film kind of it, it broke him out, and he, he, he got he got into South South West, and uh, I think Telluride, and he really, uh, he, it, it, but 
it, it's not been it's not been able to get him any further in his career because he's uh, he's had such friction with the film board. So it's it's really unfortunate. I mean, it's twenty fourteen. It's like six years later, and he still hasn't been able to bring out his next film. You know. So, yeah, I'm seeing here on IMDb that he's working on like some shorts and some documentaries, and he's also a working actor. But yeah, he has not had a prolific career as a director. But he played. He was even in Batman Begins uh, as a yes. as a SWAT cop. As a SWAT cop. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, and. Um, so, but also on the list here, I have um, Yorgios Lanthimos, you know, so this is a strange thing. Like one of the questions we kind of ask ourselves is like, what is an Irish film these days? Absolutely. Because th things have changed so much, you know, and, and Yorgios Lanthimos, you know, uh, dog tooth bro broke him out, but somehow he ended up coming to Ireland and getting and hooking up with this, this, the same production company from Lenny Abramson, uh, Element Pictures, and uh, he's been with them now ever since, and, and, and they're producing all his films, and he's getting his films are getting funded by the Irish Film Board, and uh, so is it, are they Irish films? I mean, The Lobster is an example of that, you know, pretty wacky movie, but um, and then he went on to do Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, and then The Favourite, you know, so yeah, it's... Yeah, he's, um, he's been so prolific as of late. The last couple of years, he's really hit Hitting a career high, but you can probably yeah. make a case for him being the best filmmaker ever to come out of Greece. But now that he's an international filmmaker, it's like, who does he belong to? So yeah, but it yeah. sounds like uh, the Irish are not afraid to lay claim to people when they're doing good work. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, it, it's, I was surprised like that uh, because, I mean, I remember when Dog 2 came out and then when, when I seen the, the, the lobster was being made by him here and, and I knew some people who, who were actually in the film and it's, it's such a strange story too, you know, but uh, it's, it's remarkable. But uh, yeah, no, more power to him, you know, and uh, we're happy to, to fund, fund this films if he, if he wants to come over here and make them i mean of all the filmmakers right now doing groundbreaking edgy just unconventional work yorgos lanthimos has got to be one of the best filmmakers in the world i mean his, the streak that he's on from the lobster through killing a sacred deer through the favorite that's a very yeah. strong hot streak i mean that's that, that's tough to beat so yeah he's kind of his last few movies he's really putting his best foot forward although i think dog yeah. is my favorite of his movies but it's hard to argue with just the unbridled joy of like the favorite the favorite was just fascinating yeah no absolutely i mean no i i'd, I'd like to see more of his greek output you know i'd like to see him maybe return to, to greece and make because I, I really enjoyed dog too too but and english I, I, language I would, movies are much more commercially viable on, on the international stage like there's not a lot of people that sit around thinking like let's watch some greek movies tonight because there's not that many sure, famous sure. Greek filmmakers but there are plenty of english language movies that get international uh, success so i think he's maybe pivoting to english language because of its commercial viability yeah, absolutely, and and of course, you know, like with the favorite, you know, it gets all these nods at the Oscars and the various uh, the various awards. So um, I can see him just being a, a kind of permanent fixture at those events now in the coming years. You know, well, looking ahead as an Irish filmmaker and an Irish film fan, which filmmakers that are active in your country, like if you were to make a prediction, that's 2020. Looking ahead, the next decade of Irish film, who are your like you know predict who are the future pound for pound heavyweight champions etc that are going to really dominate yeah. the irish film industry yeah well there's there's lance daly he, he just made a film last year black 47 with mo dunford from patrick's day which is set in the irish famine and that was that was a really big hit over here so i can see lance daly 
coming along and um, there's there's other there's Juanita Wilson um, she's a female director she mainly makes films in foreign languages though so she made like I, could, I don't know if you've seen As If I'm Not There which is unfortunately um, I have not seen that one yeah so this, this is this is a horrific film set, set in Serbia during the war there it's it's set in the um, the the, base, the 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 rape camps that were, that existed where these women were brought in and raped by uh, Christian uh, Bosnian uh, just t- terrible, really horrific stuff. But she made it's made entirely in the in the local language. Before that, she made a film in Russian set in Pripyat beside Chernobyl. You know, but um, she she's one of our, our our big filmmakers to look out for. Also, um, Nessa Hardiman is a, is a director who's been working in TV here. Um, she 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 has a new film coming out this year, Sea Fever. So that's expected to be big. I mean, there's um, Derbla Walsh is another female director. She has um. She's worked on the third season of Fargo, and she she, do, she directed some episodes of The Punisher. Nice. So I expect her to I expect her to move into into uh, feature films anytime soon, you know. And, and then of course, you, I mean, the ones we have like the guys like Lenny Abramson and John Carney, they, they've kind of moved over into the TV thing now because TV seems to be the next place to go. I, 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 so like you know, you got John Carney who done once he he's he's now do, working on TV show Modern, Modern Love. Um, and which is on Amazon, um, and then I said Lenny, Lenny Abramson is doing um, the uh, the normal people, which is coming out on Hulu this year. So yeah, there's, there's also Jim Sheridan's daughter, uh, Kirsten Sheridan. She's working. She's working there. Um, she, she's in LA based now, but she had a few films over here. Um, Disco Pigs, which broke out. Killian, um, Killian Murphy. Um, August August Rush. She done with um, Nick Castle. Um, Nick Castle wrote the script for it, so she she's she's out there making films, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping Terry McMahon gets to make another film, you know, because it'd be a shame if he didn't uh, if he didn't get to continue because he's he's one of the most outspoken voices here, and I think we need that. I mean, it's just one thing making commercially commercially viable films and stuff like that, but it's the little films that are telling the stories that like we don't who are going to be the future Neil Jordans? Like when you go back to maybe like the Crying Game, like for me, the Crying Game is one of those movies that represents everything that art house cinema should be, where it's tackling the the most provocative frontier of sexuality, the most provocative frontier of politics. Like everything about that movie almost feels like a provocation, but it's also an incredibly mu- moving movie, an incredibly beautifully shot movie. And just everything yeah. about the crying game represents what art house like cinema should aspire to. And I feel like you got to have the risk takers always who are willing to challenge the audience and challenge people out of their complacency and shock people. So I'm a big fan of provocateurs. But I guess more importantly, what does the next five to ten years recommend to Robert O'Mara in terms of your own writing, your own ambitions, your own film studies? What what are, what, are, what do you hope to achieve as a filmmaker yeah. in the years to come? Well, I mean, I, I, I spend like half my time here trying to get funding. You know, it's, it, it's, it's the big thing. I mean, it's one thing you can go out and make films for free with your friends and stuff like that. But if you want to get if you want to get serious, you have to try and chase the funding and. I mean, I, I remain based here because while we, we do have a lot of filmmakers here, it's, it's still very small in compared to uh, places like New York or London or, or L.A. So the, the competition pool, it's, it's only about four and a half thousand people who you're kind of competing against. Whereas if you're in London, it'd be 20,000 people or in New York, it'd probably be 100,000 people and so on and so forth, you know. But I mean, like the, here um, in, in 1990, which is kind of where we started, there was only three films made. And I went on to the Irish Film and Television Academy's website there today just to have a look and at the, at, as 
we speak, there's there's eight films shooting, there's 27 in post-production, 11 in pre-production, and 139 in development. You know? Wow. So, so compared to like 1990, that's where we are. You know, there's just been an explosion and, and, and we continue to get the, many sources to fund filmmakers, many, many kind of uh, schemes to help them um, develop their skills. There's a lot of free stuff going on. There's, there's many film schools here now. So, you know, it's, the output is, is, is amazing that the system that, that we had before has been broken. The, the, the stranglehold that was held by these people who didn't want, uh, didn't want change, you know, that's gone now and, and it's open to all to make films. Well, well, what blows my mind is like Ireland had this incredibly diverse, rich culture dating back you know, who knows how many centuries with so much political conflict and so many different points of view and just so much dynamic history and so many different voices and so many different frontiers in terms of the artistic community. It just, it blows my mind just how vibrant the community is. Yeah. I just, I, I, you put it best. As a country, Ireland punches above its weight class when it comes to filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I have to leave out so many films there, you know. And as I, after while I was researching, I kept saying, "Shit, I should have, I should have mentioned this one as well. I should have put that on the list." You know, there were so many that 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 could have that well, could have made the list. We can always reconnect for a part two, or because this one we we bit off so such a giant like piece of history, you could just yeah. come back and say, "Hey, let's talk about." one Irish movie <laughs> and yeah, one absolutely. particular importance and that way we can just relax and chill and so on and so forth so yeah but I just think I'm just thrilled that we were able to connect and that we were able to record this episode and yeah. uh, I just hope that uh, we can continue to collaborate in the uh, months and years to come I hope so I mean I'm, I'm going to up another pitch and throw it at you sometime sometime down the road you know very nice well what i'm going to do is i'm going to put this episode together and put it out there but then when saint patrick's day comes around yeah we will be force feeding this episode down people's throats so if you, if you want to hear a genuine love song and tribute to the last 30 years of irish cinema this is the podcast to listen to yeah excellent i look forward to it well where can people find you online if they want to connect and talk about films or any topic under the sun yeah, well, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I've got two I've got two dead uh, Twitter. So I'm at Dublin Filmmaker or at Bob Unsound, and uh, you can find me on uh, fourcourtsfilms.com or fourcourtsfilms.ie. So beautiful. Well, we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. I strongly recommend you hunt down these flicks. I, I had so much damn fun. I mean, I, I, as you could tell from my tone of my voice during the episode, the commitments in Embruge are particular favorites, but. When the Shakes the Barley, it, 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 it will shake you to the core of your soul. There are a lot of really powerful movies in the mix here. Obviously, Crying Game and My Left Foot. There are just, just so many great movies that, um, that came up over the course of this discussion. Or if you want to go into the back bends and check out Zardoz, I won't stop you. Zardoz is well worth a look if you want to see Charlotte Rampling questioning how a flaccid penis goes to, the, to an erect penis because the, the mystery has been lost over the, <laughs> the countless centuries and so on and so forth. But if you're looking for more content in the near future, you can always hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock, which recently crossed 20,000 subscribers. I'm very excited about that. And remember to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all those great spots. And please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating review. That's very helpful. But if you want to find me, you can always find me at Colbrex. But we can't thank you enough for listening. We greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.